differences in uh, views. That by the way, by the way, I'm not. Oh, we are we are streaming live. We just went live. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. So here we are. We're up and live. All right. Good evening. Um, welcome to the DKP. We've got uh, a guest tonight. Is uh, my aunt Tammy Swartzendruber Jada, um, and she's gonna talk to us about some of her work, um, and and uh, we're gonna talk about current events and how to uh, discuss um, or how to uh, cultivate relationships with people we disagree with. So we'll be covering a range of topics tonight, and I think it's gonna be exciting. So, Is anybody um, headed to DC for the inauguration? Nobody. Way too far on... away. <laughs> I, too I, far. Canceled so, my, I canceled my trip last minute. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, so, so you're the only one that's close enough, close enough to yeah. do it easily, Matthew. Yeah. Um, you kind of let us all down. So yeah. Um. I thought we'd we'd open up with uh, uh, Tammy. Just tell us what what uh, a little bit about your work and what you're excited about right now. I know you run a uh, academy for for uh, like learning challenged kids. I don't know how you, how you uh, would phrase that, but but uh, that's something I'm really interested in. I had the opportunity to visit it. Uh, just briefly, once several years ago, and and I would just really have loved to hang around and learn learn some more. So, that's what I'd like to open with tonight. Um, what got you into that, and and what you know what you do, and um, I know that's not all you do, but I think it's a big part of your life. That, it um, is pretty much all I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the floor is yours. Well, so what do you want to know? Like how I work, just explain that I'm well, working with kids. Yeah. And, and, and maybe what I'm interested in knowing why you got into that. It wasn't something that you, you know, trained for earlier. It wasn't like mm -hmm. a career choice of yours when you were younger. Um, something you, you chose to do more recently and really have poured your heart into. And, and why is yeah. that? What, what did you yeah. want? Why did you want to do that? And how has it gone? Yeah. Well, teaching has actually um, has been a career choice of mine. I just didn't know that it was going to involve uh, teaching children with learning disabilities because in the 60s um, and 70s, you didn't really have a lot of children with learning disabilities. We had hmm. dyslexia and, and everybody knew about that, but you didn't have all this autism and sensory issues and you know all the things we've got on it. You didn't have the spectrum then. And um, I've known since second grade that I wanted to be a teacher. And my mom kept a, the teacher was Marla Martin from Pennsylvania that taught at our uh, Mennonite church. And she called the stories compositions when we were students. And um, I wrote a composition on uh, when, when I grow up and I said, I wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to work at an orphanage. And um, so I've known since second grade, I felt this burden. Um, and I began teaching in 1979 and have been teaching in some capacity uh, since then, except for uh, 1982 when uh, Rochelle, my daughter and Anthony, the year Anthony was born um, because of the, you know, having the baby then. 
Um, when I had my other children, I, I still kept teaching. So basically, I've been in um, education for about 41 years. And wow, I didn't realize you had you had uh, been doing that like that that much of the time. Mm -hmm. So I taught school, the Mennonite schools in um, substituted in Mississippi because my sister was teaching down there. And um, but I taught school. I was one of I was the first year CLE was rolled out. I was um, on the bottom ground floor of CLE. I taught first grade um, in Canaan, Indiana. And uh, I had four learning disabled boys. And that was really probably the, the catalyst when I first thought, wow, you know, I really feel like I could work with these kind of kids. Um, so I had, I had those boys in Canaan and that was in 79. And then I also taught in, um, in Pennsylvania. Um, Marvin King was the pastor up there. It was Northern Pennsylvania. Uh, sand sand lake or something like that and then um and then after that it was teaching in baptist schools and mm -hmm. our church school is has 400 students in it now and i taught in our church school for a number of years i also taught homeschool and then i also um homeschooled my children homeschooled other people's kids and then i had a daughter who had a sensory processing disorder and um, we didn't find out until she was 10 years old. And I just knew that she was struggling to learn. She had all sorts of odd idiosyncrasies, you know, like not eating food with lumps in it and, and screaming when she had too much stimulation and um, pulling away, going into her room, right? When she had a play date, all these odd behaviors. And when she was the spring term of her third grade year, I, uh, my husband and I went to a parent conference and um, I had known this, my husband hadn't, he wanted her in public school and she couldn't read anything. She mm -hmm. knew the word the, how to spell it because it was in a song they sang, but she couldn't read the word the. She couldn't read dog or cat. I mean, when I say she couldn't read, she couldn't read. And she was, was so frustrated. She'd cry through school. She'd come from the bus home and scream her way home. And I finally realized that um, I had to bring her home, stop everything I was doing and homeschool her. And um, when I left the school, the public school, I had had dealings with them since my daughter Rochelle had been in the same school years ago. And there's a 14 year difference between those two. So it was many years ago. So I've got Rochelle at 38, Annalise just turned 24. And then I have Wally who is 19. He's my only son. And he's at Ecola Bible College right now in his second year as a ministry student at Ecola Bible College. Um, which is out here at the, by the Pacific Coast here in Cannon Beach. Um, so I brought Annalise home and taught her at home. And as I pulled her out of the public school, the principal told me that he was going to follow me because our Oregon state law says they have to pass, homeschoolers have to pass the state test at a 15 percentile. And if I couldn't get her to do that, then I would have to put her back in school she couldn't even read a state test. And so I wow. just looked at him and I just, I was just like, well, you can follow me all you want, but you know, where's your criteria? She can't pass this 15% down now. So I took him home and the state kind of followed me for a little bit, but uh, pretty soon they just let me go. And I saw through her and through the weeks that I set in on school, there were a lot of kids in the classroom just like her. Mm -hmm. And my heart just went out to these kids 
And as word got out that I was um, teaching my own daughter at home and people knew I was a teacher. So they started bringing our children to my house. And thus we formed blueberry tutoring because I had like 15 blueberry bushes and my house was painted blue, a deep denim blue. And uh, so we went with Blueberry House Tutoring LLC. And I set it up as an LLC. And it was a tutoring company that still exists today. Um, I owned the tutoring company, but the tutoring became two hour homeschool classes. And then it, then it went all morning homeschool classes. And finally, there were just too many students coming in. And uh, my son, who doesn't have any of these problems, was getting very um, upset at all the people coming through his house. And so I counted. And in a week's time, we had over 100 people coming through the doors of the house. And so um, the school was upstairs. So I went, yeah, it's time to find a place. So I moved out of the house and then the school just began to grow. And then I renamed it. Um, I renamed it to Northwest Heritage Academy. And now I'm going to be 61 this spring. So when I finished up my uh, 59, I was 59 years old. I said to my daughter, I said, the older one, the one's Anthony's age, I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I called her in the dead of night. We talked all night long. I called her at one. We were talking till four still, convincing her she needs to take the school for me. And she is not in education, but she is a much better business person than I am. So um, she's all about business. She owns several companies. So she took over the company and now I'm still working in it, but I don't have to deal with the IRS and with you know all the irate parents. And I'm administrator of grades K through six. And my daughter graduated from uh, Blueberry House, um, the one that had all the struggles. She graduated. By the time she graduated, she was grade level on everything except um, vocabulary was very low and still is for her. It still is low. I bet if she took a vocabulary test today, it would probably be at about the sixth or seventh grade level. But, you know, that's not, it's, it's low for like our family and for, uh, do I dare say it, intellects, you know, although the newspapers and everything else are written at an eighth grade level. So it's not that low for, for normal reading, you know, um, for reading fun, not profound reading. Get what I'm saying? Okay. Leave yeah. that one down. Got it. All right. So she, uh, so she's fine. And um, mm -hmm. so, and many times, she, uh, parents want to actually meet her before they put their students in. And I don't know what they're expecting, a, a monster or something, you know, she's just like very normal. She's getting married in September and she um, is a catering coordinator at Chick-fil-A. She has not gone to college, but they, she just got a scholarship um, and they're sending her off a $1,500 scholarship and they're sending her off to leadership training. They don't know anything's wrong with her. I can still tell it, but her peers and things don't get it anymore. They did when she was younger, but not anymore. So through her, I learned a lot about working with kids. And as the school grew, those were the kind of students that were brought to me because everybody knew my struggles with her and what her struggles were. I also became a writer for um, Gator News, which is a um, online uh, publication, uh, which is for sensory kids. I write curriculum for students who are um, who have learning disabilities, no matter what it is. I um, I formed this school, and on the, in the school, every student works at their own level. So if we have a student who is 
fourth grade and can do pre-algebra. He does pre-algebra, but if he can only read at the second grade level, he reads at the second grade level. There's now 70 students and uh, 72 students in grades K through 12. So we do the homeschool transcripts and everything for them. We run four days a week to stay within Oregon state law because we are a tutoring center and we cannot offer the exact same hours, the exact same curriculum as public school and, and uh, without having to fall under their rules. So it's formed as a tutoring center still. When my daughter took it over, we cut off my Northwest Heritage and she renamed it Northwest Heritage Learning Center so that we could stay open through COVID. So it harkened back more to a tutoring center. We didn't follow the school rules. So now it's just a learning center and everybody's setting up learning pods all over because of COVID. So it worked for us. And then, um, and so the school continues to grow. Right now I'm fourth grade teacher. I have 10 fourth graders. But in the fourth grade class, within those 10 students, I teach every subject in grades K, one, two, three, and four, because of all the different learning disabilities. And my granddaughter, who is 17, uh, Rochelle's daughter, she is an uh, aide to me. She, you know, runs all my errands, runs the Starbucks for me and things like that. So, <laughs> so this, is, this is what I'm doing. And this is how I became interested in, um, in this work that I've, I've basically given my life to. Mm -hmm. And my husband has totally supported it financially and in every way I managed to, before I retired, I, um, and gave the business over, I managed to pay him back every penny that I had used to, for startup costs. So, um, but you know, it's, it's not lucrative as you know, private schools are not, but um, it's, I'm glad my daughter was able to take it over, but this has been my life work, my life calling. And um, this is where I, I'm having trouble retiring because I thought I would not come back. I can't leave it alone. I just feel like it is one of the gifts you know, that, that God has given me as a gift of teaching. And I just, I just don't feel that the calling is lifted from my life. You know, I just don't feel the call to retire. It's a heavy, heavy burden with me all the time for these kids. Mm -hmm. So uh, during the summer, I uh, tutor and we switched all our tutoring through Zoom now for online tutoring. And once school starts, I give that to uh, subcontractors of mine that, that do the tutoring. So is that, uh, does, is that tutoring, do you do that anywhere or that's just local people? That's your regular students that you're tutoring? Uh, no, that's before COVID when we were in-person tutoring, it was all of Southeast Portland. Some of them would come from Vancouver, which we know Portland's not too far from Vancouver. Um, but now that we're online, it, you know, distance doesn't matter. So they come from all over for online. Uh, most of my tutoring is public school students. It's, it's not, you know, private school or our school. Right. Um, it's usually public school students. So in this year, I could be making literally five times the money if I would have not worked in the school and just tutored because so many people need tutoring because of the online learning and distance learning and hybrid classes and all. I could have made way more money. But for me, it's never been about the money. My heart's with that school and I did not want to, it, it, it struggled with the, you know, with the turnover and now with COVID, I was just determined I had to hang in there and make sure this thing went. I was not gonna see my life work just come to a screeching halt because of the transition and, and because right. of COVID. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm at today. And I have no idea how long I'm going to uh, continue, but um, I can tell you that working with fourth graders all day is very wearing on me. 
I had been for the last 12 years teaching high school and junior high writing and literature courses uh, while I was administrator and, and owned the company. So now I'm with the fourth graders and oh my goodness, <laughs> take me back to high school. <laughs> that's, that's a really neat story. Dave, you, you do some work with, with learning disability, don't you? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I work primarily with dyslexia, uh, raising awareness in Mennonite and Amish schools about dyslexia. Um, and then um, I often recommend the Barton system. I don't know if you're familiar with Susan Barton, the Bart reading spelling system, but that's, I figure probably, but um, yes. that's a major thing that I recommend. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of schools. I've been doing it for, well, it's going on 10 years now. Oh, really? I've been doing that. And I've been surprised at the, um, the opportunities. There's, um, they rented, uh, this was early on when I started doing it down in Davis County, Indiana, they rented a, a um like a i guess it was an auction barn or something like that for the uh for the event and i probably had two or three hundred amish come to listen to me speak on dyslexia wow and, um so it's it's been really neat that um I've, I've been surprised at how many doors were open i actually was up on vancouver island uh there's a nationwide church up on vancouver island that i was up last february right before covid i uh <laughs> i uh was up there for about a close to a week and um, working with the school there. So that's, yeah, that's kind of what I do with that. Do you stick just with the Barton or are you like um, doing Orton Gillingham? Um, uh, I, I stick with Barton. I'm mainly like, I don't actually do the tutoring. I'm ADD and I don't have the, um, I don't have the kind of focus that it takes to be that because that's extremely precise. So my yes. thing is more consulting and um, this is what you need to do. And so I don't even like the, I don't even do the heavy lifting as far as even teaching someone how to do it. Um, I recommend get the training here and do this. And it's more, more like a, a resource and a kind of a bridge between what they don't know and what they need to do than actually providing the services themselves. Is it to schools, to the teachers, or are you going to the parents or how is that? Um, it depends. Um, sometimes I, it depends on what the contact is. A lot of times it's, um, it's through the school, like a school will come and ask me to speak to the patrons about it and kind of community awareness. And then I also got Susan Barton uh, did a training for how to screen for dyslexia. And so I do screenings too. Um, mm -hmm. So they have me come in and do, um, do a handful of screenings and then um, give recommendations for how to help the students and so on. So do you feel kinda, like, have you, excuse me, have you followed up on that? And do you feel like the Mennonite, nationwide those kind of churches are actually um are their teachers getting um training in that they are um i've i've heard a lot of really good reports um i've obviously i've had some that are kind of um that they, they don't see the results because they're not as careful as they should mm -hmm. but a lot of the people i've worked with they have really been able to see some major differences i had a father call me um this has been a couple of years ago now, but called me and kind of, you can just hear the tears in his voice telling me how his boy wouldn't look at books, had no interest in it. And he said, now after it was probably about six months later that they'd started the tutoring, he said, we have to go up after they turn, after we turn, send him to bed to make sure he's not reading under the covers with a flashlight. Yeah, and that's just, uh, yeah, you know, that's just an example of a, of a major change. I had somebody call me a couple of weeks ago, just saying the the change that their child had and how now 
they're being asked to speak at a teacher's meeting to give their experience. This is what my child was dealing with and this is what we did and, and what helped and so on. And so it's really exciting to see that, um, to see, cause you know how stringent the, the, the system can be as far mm-hmm. as, you know, if you, if, if you don't understand, well, you must, you must be a bad kid, you know, just, right, you, right. and to, to, to see those eyes open and to realize and to make the connections, this is, this is something these students can't help you're able really to then to tap into the compassion and st- and um and i mean it's not always but i've had some i've had some uphill battles but i really feel like we've been able to make um a pretty big difference in the last 10 years and that's what keeps you going and that's like why yeah, i can't absolutely. quit you know <laughs> you just <laughs> i just every success is just just when you get discouraged and there's a kid who suddenly sees the light and you know, it's like, whoa, there's, and, and the light bulb never truly goes on for learning disabled students, but mm-hmm. you just, you measure it by little, you know, yeah. tenths of centimeters and, and eventually, you know, you take them as far as you can. Yeah, that's kind of exciting. I, I didn't know there's anything like that within the Mennonite Church. The Mennonite yeah, Church is I was up in uh, New York, the Finger Lakes area. There's a, the Weaverland Conference is a lot of churches up there. And I went down in the, um, in the basement of one of the schools there and they had a little a little room in the corner of so you could tell it was an addition you know that they'd added on and it had um they had a little sign on <clears throat> next to the door that said something like um our barton reading corner oh that is good. that realization i did yeah. this i made this happen that was it was really cool it really feels like you're um like you're making a difference not just for the one or two children that you worked with at the time but the fact that you've opened a door in that community right. that they know what to do when they run into certain specific issues. Now you, you don't have to answer this, but do you get, but you can choose to, do you get paid for what you do? Like for speaking engagements? Yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> I have a fixed rate for my, for my screenings that I do. And then most of the community, if I come into a teacher training, I have a per, I have a cost per teacher, mm-hmm. but then like my community talks and those kind of things, I always do this on a donation basis. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's for the community. But if an individual right. school wants you to come in, yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of how I handle it. I have, um, and I'm a, I'm a teacher. Uh, when I started doing it, um, I kind of looked at it as something to support my teaching habit. Um, and uh, so that's um, I taught for seven years, then I took a break, and now I'm back teaching again. So it's it's really nice. There's actually been years where it's been close to a quarter of my income, so it really helps supplement the teaching. Where, what do you teach? Um, I teach at, a, at our Mennonite school. So I teach seventh and eighth grade, all subjects. That's my favorite. That's my favorite level is junior high. That's a really funny. It's this year yeah, I have, I, I have yeah. 10 students, nine boys and one girl. Um, so that's yeah. fun. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, that's so you said, I'd sooner see, what? Go ahead. Well, I'd sooner see the nine boys and the one girl than nine girls and one boy. Girls, junior high girls could destroy a school, literally. <laughs> You know, they're just so catty and so, yes. you know, hormonal and have so many splits between them, social splits, and then moms get involved. And yeah, I about crashed my school over uh, too many girls in junior high. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, was I know. <laughs> it yeah, no. really was the first split we ever had. So well, that's um, really cool. Just a, a quick question. You said you were, um, you were in Canaan, uh, Indiana. So like i taught with a with a um one of my co-teachers marla um mar i forget what her maiden name would have been marla bear now 
um, that I think she was from there. I don't know if you'd know them, her or not. And Alan Troyer, I think, taught there at one time. Would he have been there the time yeah. you were there? Well, I would have been there in um, 1980, 1979, 1980. Okay, um, that would have probably they, been long ago, long enough ago that she would have been very, little, yeah, very young at that was, point. It was set up at a double wide trailer house and um, Bontrager. Um, he now has a church in uh, in Washington, Ron Bontrager from Indiana. Okay. Uh, he and I were, were co-teachers there. And um, and I, like I said, we were on the ground floor that year. I think there were 66, uh, 66 schools in CLE at that time in Canada and the United States. So it was just like getting off the ground. And, um, and I was so proud of myself because, and very thankful to God, because I went to the CLE teachers meeting in Minnesota and where all of these CLE heads were, people who wrote the curriculum. And because I had first grade, learning disabled students, they had told me, I, when I went there, I found out that uh, they came to me with it at the end of the conference. It was a two-day conference there, and um, someone from CLE came and told me they were offering me all sorts of opportunities that I was too young. I, I didn't want, I, you know, I, now if these opportunities would come, I would take advantage of them, but mm -hmm. I just didn't, I, it was too many things so like to go places and to help because my students were ahead and a better grade room average than the guy who wrote the first grade curriculum. He was teaching the first grade curriculum, but my students were further into the curriculum and it was fall, you know, late fall. And not only were they further in, uh, the superintendent, uh, the, not superintendent, the preacher, what do you guys call him? The bishop or whatever of Canaan, Indiana was Levi Mast. And he had already sent all this information up ahead and they, um, and he told them that it was with boys who had learning disabilities. And so I had all sorts of opportunities in within CLE uh, to go all over. And I just, I, I, you know, no, 1920, I just wasn't going to do that. You know, it was just too scary. You don't want to be so far away from home and all these things. I just didn't realize, um, I didn't know enough really. I think, I think they probably figured I knew more than what I knew. I was just simply, that I think when your gift, you have teaching as a gift of the spirit, when this is one of your gifts, I think that um, you, you could go to school and have all the letters after your name and that's not what's gonna make you a teacher. You know, right. it, it really has to be something mm -hmm. that is spirit-filled thing. It really has to be a, a calling on your life, not just a job. So I never followed up on so that, but I thought that's kind of interesting. Are you aware that CLE is actually working on an OG-based reading curriculum uh, right now? It's in development. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, they wow. uh, they asked me to do some consulting on it uh, because of my background with it, and so yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. They're um, they're working real hard to um, they they aren't billing it as a completely OG like here's what you can do for a child with severe dyslexia, but they say there's a lot of children that are you wouldn't say they're dyslexic but they they you know they're kind of halfway in between they're yeah. not there's nothing it doesn't seem like there's a lot out there for something it's either full-blown intervention or just mainstream and so they're kind of mm -hmm. trying to create something in the middle that children that need more intensive phonics practice 
um, mm. but not necessarily a Fort Wharton Gillingham, you know, attack on the problem. Yeah. Um, we'll be able to use this curriculum. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, dyslexia is not considered um, a learning disability because it is uh, brain how like how the brain thinks. Right. So it stands more on its own. It's not considered one of the learning disabilities, and that might be what you're saying is you know these right. children are truly not dyslexic. It's more of a either haven't had the correct teaching or the correct method, but it's more of a lag in comprehension and a lag in in you know being able to work with the phonics and being taught it correctly. Mm -hmm. Because uh, full-blown dyslexics, as you know, you know, if you're dyslexic, you, we used to think it was reversing letters and numbers. Now we know it's a full brain experience. It's dyslexic mm -hmm. in all areas of your of your life, not just academics. And it took them a long time to come to that realization. But yeah, can you, I, uh, can you explain that a little bit more? What 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 do you mean by that? Because I was still under under the impression that it, it was just a reading issue. Oh no, um, dyslexia means that you actually think in a whole different way and um, your thought processes even your memory is often affected by dyslexia I actually um, went to a panel uh, at Oregon's um, Oregon Health OHSU here up on the what they call Pill Hill area in Oregon City in Portland where you have all your medical buildings and they train medical students they flew in uh, doctors and uh, people from England who had worked on the cutting edge of, of working with the brain and their panel uh, experts, they took straight here from Oregon. I guess it speaks to the people more. One, um, the one they had had the largest law firm in Oregon. The other one had the largest banking firm in Oregon. And I cannot remember what the third one was. All three of them were, oh um, yeah, law firm and banking. I don't remember the other one all three of them were severely dyslexic. So to say how that affects you in all of life, the lawyer said he still, and he's like, was 50 years old, has to go into a courtroom. And if he's in a new courtroom, he said he'll go in 10 to 12 times before he has to go. And he'll sit down where he's going to sit and then walk up to the podium. Then he'll come back and then he'll walk to where the judge is and he'll walk to the bathrooms. He was that dyslexic. Um, it's a, it affects everything you do and say. And your numbers, the way you speak, many times you'll find people with dyslexia reversing words. Um, they'll, of course, reverse numbers. The banker ran the largest banking firm, most successful largest banking firm in Oregon. He doesn't even work his own numbers. He just sits there and rattles it off like a, I mean, it is, it is just almost impossible to understand him. So his aide, and he just does staccato like numbers. And the aide just types all this in and, and gives him the figures and, you know, cause he can't even, um, if he tried to put it into a calculator and he'd reverse it. And so it was just going to show that you can get on in life severely dyslexic, you know, and, and that it affects everything. These were grown men. So it affects your whole life. You, you see things differently. You um, comprehend differently. Of course it affects your phonics and your reading. It affects your ability to do math. And like I said, many times you can tell by speaking to them. Um, a lot of people who are dyslexic will not use really like compound complex sentences when they speak. Uh, it's just too much. They'll, they'll mix it up. You know, they'll um, dangling modifiers all over the place and you, you can just pick it up after a while. And um, so you don't really find severely dyslexic people 
um, clamoring for the limelight, but a lot of them are because when they're successful like that, because it's just gives so much hope to others, but they're mm -hmm. doing a lot of studying on the brain right now. And they no longer class it as a learning disability. It's just another way to learn because you can actually be trained out of dyslexia. And if you have a learning disability, you have it for life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can, can I ask you a question about that? I, 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 um, I actually worked in the developmentally disabled community for a long time. I, uh, starting back to my youth, we had a, a special needs school next to my elementary school and I got involved with peer tutoring all through my early, my own education. Uh, I worked with a special needs classroom and then my first work out when I graduated from high school was in, in group homes and then we did foster work and was back in children's care facilities later in my life. So I had a long standing, you know, love for that community and for the needs that are there. Being that you work with, with um, learning disabilities, what are the, it seems like we've come a long way in, in, um, in how we're viewing these things. Like even that, even that notion of dyslexia being much more comprehensive than a reading issue. Where are the places where, as as a broader community, we still need to grow in understanding people with these special needs, and how can we uh, how can we be um, better at adjusting and caring for our neighbors with these kinds of difficulties and issues? Are there foregrounds of that issue that you you know of, and because of your profession? Um. Well. I'm mostly in the private sector. So right. um, I'm really not a community person. Right. Believe it or not, Anthony will not believe this, but I do have this uh, shyer side of me that kind of, or maybe I shouldn't say it's shy. Maybe it's doubting myself still a little bit. So I don't really get involved in that type of thing, but I can tell you that like like what's happening, you know, in the community and in the on the front of all of this. Um, but I can tell you that I am so glad to hear that David is, doing this in the Mennonite and the private schools there because that is really where the lag is. Our public schools are really very aware and um, are making a huge emphasis on that here in the United States, you know, and I don't of course know worldwide, but I, I do have a lot of um, contact with teachers from Australia and they have a very um, keen awareness of this too, but they have cutting edge programs for this that private schools, we can't, we don't have access to and don't have the funds for. Um, so they are really working with it, but I don't, I don't think there's any, like at my school and at your basic Christian schools, um, funds are always an issue. And I don't think that we're doing any, I don't think we're doing enough for these children. You know, I just, I just, I, I doubt, and the public school, even though they have all the things to do it, I, I think that they're not using it properly. They're, they've got all these funds and all these programs and Title I, um, which gives them extra funds depending on the amount of low-income students in their, um, in their schools. And there's a direct correlation between learning disabilities and um, low income. And it's, I know the low income mm -hmm. don't like to hear this, but there is a direct correlation between that. Um, it's been proven with lots of data. And so your Title I schools get the money to work with these programs, but I don't think they're even using it effectively even then because I see these kids that come in from public school. And when we get a hold of them, we can do better with our little, you know, Stone Age type 
things we do <laughs> they could do with their high tech you know mm -hmm. so as far as what the communities are doing well yeah making an awareness like programs that you know like that panel that you can go to and learn from there's classes at the at the colleges that you could take and there's a real everybody seems to be tuned into dyslexia um what, what they understand less is dyslexia and ADD and ADHD are the three things that uh, parents and everybody seem to know that affect learning. What they understand far less is um, sensory integration, um, sensory processing, auditory processing, how that affects the student. And so those students just get labeled as um, used to be Asperger's. Asperger's is now considered junk science they used to get labeled as Asperger kids or having autism and on the outer rings of that. And I don't even think that's fair to these children. I just think that um, there's not enough awareness of these. The public school will call these children the trackers because they track them on through. Whereas if you're dyslexic, you would not be a tracker because there'd be a program to work with you. Um, mm -hmm. so, so they're trackers. They're also called crackers because they fall through the cracks. They're also called the shadow children. And that's because they survive there in the shadow and just get pushed on, just like my daughter was. Those are the kids that I wanted to reach, were those shadow children, not the true, like real, real special ed that would qualify for special ed. We don't work with those. Um, we work with dyslexic students, but we do not really advertise for dyslexia. Um, my work is more with the ones that were tracked through or the ones that are back in the shadows really without any diagnosis everyone knows there's something mm -hmm. wrong but they don't know how to fix it and because that's kind of where my daughter was mm -hmm. so those are the kids we get we don't get like the behavioral issues which they try many times to do but to give us but we don't get kids with behavioral issues we get 75 percent of our school has uh, the children of the students have add or adhd um and that affects learning of course and the public schools really aren't dealing with that at all because their classrooms are too full. But, um, but really, I'm dealing more with just that kind of that part in there that isn't truly autistic. Well, some of them are. We have some diagnosis of autistic, but not the head banging in the corner, not speaking kind of autistic kids. We're not working mm -hmm. with those. And we have, um, I would say, uh, probably 15% are dyslexic. Um, and I think that the reason, largely, because we do not you know, advertise ourselves as Orton Gillingham or, you know, Barton or any such program. So I think largely we're affected in that because I train all the teachers, but also um, they, once you get those students into a small setting, there's all this one-on-one -on -one teaching and everything's taught at their level. You know, you, you, can, you can see what you can fine tune your program to work with those kids. And I think that's where our success is, not this, um, none of my teachers right now have any credentials in dyslexia. They they just have dyslexic students and are successful because of the training to work with students who are learning differently than other students are. And so that's really our focus isn't dyslexia, okay. but we get those. Yeah. So are you familiar with uh, Barbara Aerosmith? The Aerosmith program? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Is that something you want to do? Pardon me? I hate the Aerosmith program. I do not like the Aerosmith program. Okay. No, I, have, I, I get kids that have spent three or four years in the Aerosmith program and I get them. And Aerosmith is more like working with the brain 
and reprogramming. Mm -hmm. Is that the program you're talking about? Right. She yeah. basically she used some of the it's it's a lot of the methods she used with herself to um to help her develop processing um processing right. speed and those kind of things. But what happens is parents pay so much money for Aerosmith programs that some schools will do that, like charter schools will do that for a source of funds. So they'll put in an Aerosmith program. Uh, that was my phone and my bell at the school. Somebody walked by my school door. Um, they'll put in these programs for money, but then the students just spin their wheels there. And I have not seen one student come through that program and having helped change them. I just see parents funneling money through that thing and then they're not then they're in my office crying because you know their kids been in there for three or four years going through this program and not seeing changes um mm -hmm. largely too because when a school gets that program in there the students are taken out of mainstream and therefore they've already been behind now they're put into this program that will work with their brain and to think you know different ways to learn different ways but they do not continue their education at the same level so they fall further and further and further behind um, case in point, right now I have a 14-year-old boy who I actually tutored him when he was in first and second grade. They are now back to us when he hit seventh grade. This is his third year with us. At seventh grade, they finally called me to go to med school. He had spent the intervening years, three of those years, in an Aerosmith program, and which I, she had written me about, and I told her not to do it. She did it anyway, just desperate. And um, he is working at a, about a second grade level right now mm. at 14. I firmly believe, yes, he has developmental delay, but I firmly believe that if we'd have had him all that time <clears throat> and forgot that program, that if we'd have had him all that time, I really think that he would have excelled by now. You know, I, I think he'd be further on because we've seen that in just the three years that, well, two and a, two and a half years that we've mm. had him. But now he lost all that time. But I'm sure that, you know, it may be how it's implemented in different schools or something. But and I know she claims it really helped her. I just have not. I just see parents with no money, just so desperate and paying into that program, you know, mm -hmm. to, to help. And Brighter Minds is another one that's really popular. And, and they actually put, you know, the electrodes and nodes on the brain and, you know, convince the parents to watch the screen and this and this is happening. I just I. Okay, so now, so that happened. Then what do we do with our kids? You know, it's like, it's just, it, it's really, there's so many things out there that parents in desperation race after and just will do anything for these kids. And it's just a, not helping. What they really, I, I am convinced that when any child truly needs, you have the children with global developmental delay, what we used to call retardation, um, is they don't give a diagnosis of that anymore. Now just the car's carburetor or whatever, time or whatever that thing is, is, is retarded, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so funny, <clears throat> I hear my husband working in the garage and he'll call to my son, no, it's still retarded. You know, and they're working on the car and I'm like, oh, I just cringe. But, um, but that group of people are now called, um, have, get a diagnosis of global developmental delay which global means their whole body being the globe. They're just delayed coordination, everything. And um, those students, of course, will not excel like students with just a learning disability diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But I find the biggest factor in the success of these children is parenting. And I, no one can 
No one can convince me otherwise. I've seen it in 41 years of education. The kids with, that you would think would be the very worst at um, academics, social, reading social norms, like autistic kids can't, you know, do that. <clears throat> um, the very worst of those. You can get them from a home that mom and dad have been fully aware of what's happening. There's structure in the home. There's expectations from that child. And there's discipline of that child. And there's uh, feeding the brain at home, you know, where they read stories to them. They talk about intellectual things. They discuss things. That child from that home, that's where your success lies. It, and then, man, if they can get that along with a school like ours, you have got a successful child. And um, I just feel like <clears throat> if it's missing at home, I don't think that you can do much with it. I really don't. You're saying that you're saying that even in case of severe delays, um, parents providing expectations of behavior and those kind of things help to bring the that whatever you want to call it performance level or their their ability level up just simply because it's expected that that's what they're going to do and then exactly. obviously with that's going to be the training to help them exactly because that's the... it's easy for parents to look at well he can't do it so and then uh you end up perpetuating it is that if i am i right. am i hearing you right exactly for example last week um, I mean, I have very updated examples because I'm in this daily. Um, I had this boy, I, so it was, you know, the kids had been working really hard. And so I had um, had my teacher's aide order in Wendy's Frosties. Only 10 kids, 99 cents for a Frosty. Those Frosties are not on the main menu. You have to know about them. They're 99 cents. And I kid you not, they are about a quarter of a cup of ice cream. They're so small. And um, I had that that brought in. So one little fourth grade boy who is working at a first and second grade level and who has extreme ADHD said to me after he ate it, um, did that have sugar in it? And I said, yes. Well, I'm not supposed to have sugar. I said, well, you should have told me that before I did that. I said, we don't have that in the office on your paperwork. And he goes, well, when I get home tonight, my mom's going to be so mad because and then he just took off running in the classroom and he goes, I'm going to be zooming this way and zooming that way and banging my head on the wall and, and just, oh, I just can't think. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, Isaiah, let me tell you something. You can control that. No, I can't control my brain. When I get sugar, my brain controls me. That's not something that a child says, you know, right. that's been, that's been told them. And then he said, um, I said, well, so you're not responsible for what you do when you have sugar. Nope, I can't control that. I said, so what happens when you're 16 and um, you've just had an ice cream cone and you drive by the car lot with all those beautiful shiny cars and you just decide you're just going to steal one because you're not responsible. The sugar you ate is. Who's going to jail? You or the sugar? Oh, Mrs. Jaden, and he rolled I threw himself across the table. Oh, that's so funny, sugar going to jail. I said, who goes? I said, you do. That tells you you're responsible. Well, sure enough, I got an email from um, <clears throat> the mother and no, a telephone call. And she said to me that um, she's very disappointed that I gave him I, uh, sugar. I said, then you need to write that, you know, on the records in the office, on his forms. We have no nothing here that says he can't have sugar. And so having been in this field for long enough, I really wanted to hear what she had to say. I said, so 
tell me um, what's happening at home because of that. She said to me, he's zooming all over. He's banging his head into the wall. He's running all over and he's just, his whole brain just boggled. This is a record that this child has played in their head because mom tells them that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, you take the child that doesn't know what's supposed to happen because of having mm-hmm. sugar. And um, I know I have low blood sugar, <clears throat> low blood sugar. So when I get sugar, I fall asleep. You know, it's just, I get migraines, I fall asleep. Yeah, things happen with sugar. I know that. But mm-hmm. it was almost like, like I had just pressed the button on a cassette tape recorder, you know, and just played back yeah. what the voice said. It's a, it's and a, tra- so, it's a training. You've been, it's, it's yeah. reinforced behavior, not mm-hmm. saying that it's, yeah, I'm saying there's not a connection between sugar and the other, but when you give somebody right. a blank check, well. So they have all these behaviors and then, and then they don't know how to deal with them. <clears throat> and on the extreme end of that, they're put into behavioral schools, which we have one right down the road um, from my school. And they call us all the time. Um, what ends up happening Okay, these children that, um, not children like him with the sugar, but I'm like children like my daughter that are the shadow children, um, what they need are, I didn't even know sensory um, issues even existed. And it was, I had a very popular weblog at the time and weblogs are fairly new, you know, people, mommy bloggers weren't all over the place. And, and um, so mine was quite a successful um, blog at the time. And, um, a lady uh, on there, a, a girl on there, she was actually only in her 20s, just, you know what, I, when you talk about your daughter, it sounds exactly like my sister and my parents discovered she had a sensory processing disorder. So I looked it up and it was just my daughter just all the way through. And then what I did was we took her to a hospital that had a child development program and you had to go there for eight hours and they put them, she saw five different doctors, therapists and doctors within that eight hours. And I got to watch through a one-way window and to see what she was doing in there. And she worked one-on-one with each therapist and with the pediatrician. They, she hadn't even gotten all the way through her first doctor or therapist before a nurse came to me. And she said, um, well, I've been watching everything on the computer. And because as these therapists work with them, they type into the computer and then they have the children, you know, do things, look at these pictures and do things. And she said, um, we've already got a diagnosis. She said, she has a sensory processing disorder. But they still took her through everything. But hers was so severe that they caught it right away. I've had other people that I have sent up there. They come out and they don't, the diagnosis is we don't know what's wrong. But my daughter was just so fitting the every, you know, every um, item on the list was checked for her. But um, so armed with that knowledge, I um, went in and did deep, deep studies on this, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on what to do with these children. And that's where I ended up with the school. So I didn't go to college. It was all my own research on this that, mm-hmm. that made me set up this school and, and taught me how to work with her. And um, it was just time consuming. And parents, <clears throat> parents do not have the time being two parent working families and um, a lot of them are just throwing their kids at the school and trusting that the school knows what to do. And the school oftentimes has no idea what to do with mm-hmm. these students. You have to train these kids with sensory issues that are on the autism, um, autism spectrum. It's not like you teach, like you teach other kids. 
they, and, and students learn, kid, children in your home, they learn by looking at the other kids and they learn by looking at you as dad, what your facial um, uh, expressions are, that you're mad, that you're upset, that you're happy. They don't read that. And uh, their world's just a flat world. And um, so you really have to train them. And I hate to say it, but you almost train them like a dog. Like um, your dog doesn't understand everything, but when you say sit, he sits, you know. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of what you have to do with these children. And that is heavy, heavy parent involvement. And like with my daughter, I didn't even let her go to someone else's house to have, you know, after school for a snack or whatever until she was 12 because she did not understand um, even how to, what the expectations would be. So mm -hmm. in, in their own setting, she can sit at the table, pass the food. She knows, you know, to pray before she eats. But when you get to someone else's place, they get overstimulated with the new environment and then they do dumb things. Um, mm -hmm. They just start repeating words over and over or talking really loudly or jumping all over. So I had to show her how to sit, what the expectations were at the table and, and you just train them, you know, and here's now when you take your fork, you wait, it's just every single step is, is a training that you do not have to do with others, with other kids, with, with your other children in your family. And that's mm -hmm. why I say I can, the kids that come out of these homes, where there's this intense um, teaching, it doesn't matter if their learning disability is far worse than an, if the kid than the kid who has barely any disabilities, but they're behind in school enough that we know there is a problem, but their home is messed up. It's it's almost a losing battle. It's, I, I firmly believe it starts mm -hmm. in the home and structure schedule. It's oh no, I've kids. I've seen that. Um... Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, well, this has really been interesting. And, and uh, I think we're about 10 minutes past the hour, and I'd like to pivot a little bit if we can. Um, I think it looks like there are some people in the comments that would love to engage with you further, Tammy. Um, but maybe maybe at some point you can follow up on that comment thread. But Do I see we, the comments on my end? I'm so used to being a host. I don't know what happens when I'm not. Um, you know what? I think that you can see it under the, yeah, under the live yeah. stream, but uh, yeah, that's, that's up to you if you want to do that after we okay. log off. But, but I did have some questions related to that. We were going to pivot to uh, current events a little bit. Um, the, the one, the one thing I wanted to ask, um, and you've, you've done a lot of talking now about these these sorts of things and maybe you've covered this question but i i was i was going to ask what is something you've learned from your work with kids that you wish more people knew like what's a key thing that you find people don't understand i imagine the last principle of the importance of the home is one of those big ones is there it something is. else yeah. that comes to mind that i wish that people knew about that yeah i i just yeah i do wish that people um understood that you know, I think that parenting, if they don't understand, they should do parenting classes. I think the Mennonite Church is really good at doing that. But I, like I said, that is really, really huge. Um, what happens in the home and with the um, demise of the structure of the family today, you know, two parent families, families that have to go to work. I think that's why we're seeing more of these problems with these kids. Um, so Bill, basically your question was, again, what did you ask me? <laughs> um, yeah, what is something you've learned from your work with kids that you wish more people knew? I wish that they would um, 
that they would understand that if they're seeing a problem, like if they're not, if they know that something is wrong or they have a sense that something is wrong, that they would, um, that they get help for that. You know, don't, don't keep like, um, I have no idea where you guys all stand on corporal punishment or your audience, but, um, if you spank a child with a sensory disorder, you've just added to the sensory part. So it really is not helpful. Um, and, and you're usually spanking them in the middle of whatever it is upsetting them. And they're not able to sort it all out. They're not focusing They're They're so into themselves and, um, their brain isn't functioning correctly. And then you're spanking them yet on top of it. I, I wish parents would understand. And, and if you see something going on, seek help for that and find out and don't just resort to um, this discipline right away because it really just adds to your problem. Now I am, uh, I have spanked all my children, um, but there I look back and I can see discipline that I gave to Annalise that I was wondering why nothing was working and it was only escalating. And um, my dad being a very authoritarian parent, um, of course I adapted that kind of parenting. My husband's a much gentler disciplinarian than I am. Um, and I wish I would have known that so that I wasn't spanking her for disobedience when it was not something she could help. It was, you know, she was, had too much uh, sensory things coming into her brain and wasn't able to sort out. The spanking is not the, op not, the, not the thing to do there. In fact, the best thing you could do with these children is leave them alone, send them to their room, um, put them in a quiet place. So, and, and let them, let them wind down because almost at that time, any intervention is not going to work. You just keep mm -hmm. them safe. And then when they come out of that and they're clothed and in their right mind, not running around like little devils in them, you uh, speak to them and then they can understand what you're saying. Not that they will remember it because they have sensory processing, but my daughter right now, um, you know, she, she is very functional, very um, normal. And, but it just, it just took a lot of work. And I, I guess I would say my th things that I would say are paramount. And again, even the discipline harkens back to the home. The home is where this all is. Teachers, therapists, doctors, they can only do so much. If that mm -hmm. home is not structured and the parents are not together on this and it's not, um, you know, just a complete and whole home where, wholesome the foundation everything is I, I it's just a losing battle with these kids so I, I just want parents with those children to to not be so quick to to use the rod because that's a sensory feeling and all it is doing is adding to the sensory millions of sensory <laughs> things that are coming into their heads you know it's yeah. like they're not going to get it piling more piling more on when there's already an overload yeah they're all the reason they're acting out is they're already overloaded now we've overloaded them more, you know, and yeah. it's just ineffective. And I, that's one of my big regrets of not, of not having Annalise, knowing what was wrong with Annalise, because I just saw it as disobedience. Mm -hmm. And after I learned how to work with it from my hours and hours of study and talking to behavioral therapists, which I don't totally uh, go along with everything they said, but, um, but everybody learns their own child. And after that, I was like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I've often said you could spell motherhood g-u-i-l-t instead of motherhood you know um but that's one of the things that really bothers me is that i would like other parents to steer away from 
get a diagnosis so yeah. you know what you're dealing with. And, and yeah, yeah, and I, I, I hear you. I hear you saying. Um, I think that a lot of us need a, a few more tools in our in our um, child training toolkit. Um, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. There's, there's in certain cultures, there's really a tendency to just fall back on, on physical mm -hmm. discipline for whatever is going wrong, and it's mm -hmm. just it. You know, there's nothing in scripture that suggests that that's the the solution to all problems with children. Well, you know, it's most interesting. My dad is, which would be Anthony's grandpa, would be 81 in May. And I asked, I sat down and asked him when my mother was dying, uh, I don't know, eight, I don't know when she died, eight years ago or something, maybe 10. But during that time, we were sitting by her bedside and, you know, she, she was not cognizant of anything going on. And, and so we just had a lot of time to talk while we're just sitting there with her. And I just asked my dad, we got him some kind of some deep things about the family and all. And I just had this burning question. And I was just like, Pop, tell me, why did we always get spanked? Why were there no timeouts, um, you know, making the punishment fit the crime? You know, the things that we know and, and are trained on now, we were just all the time spanked. And he got really thoughtful and and he said, and that's kind of something I think I've been harboring a little bit, even as an adult. It's like, I feel like I got spankings that were not justified, but everything was spanked. Everything you did that was wrong, you got a spanking for. And he said to me something that I just thought was so profound and goes along right with what you're saying, Anthony. He said, Tammy, and, and he was very thoughtful. He wasn't just off the cuff. He said, well, we didn't know what else to do. That's all we knew for discipline. So there is what, what you're saying is there's just a lack of tools. And of course, back then, you didn't have all the time out and you didn't have, you know, parents' choices. Now they give choices and, and it was just spanking for everything. And after my dad said that, I, then, then I don't know why I couldn't think of that myself, but then it really hit me. Yeah, it's not really his fault. You know, that's all he knew. Whereas now we can't ever say that's all we know because we have so many resources a huge one being the internet, you know, where we can find um, and, and studies of, you know, progress. Like if one of us children would have had a sensory issue, I don't know if we'd be alive today. <laughs> you know, I mean, you would just get, it would just be disobedience the whole way around, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, yeah, I really think we need more, more parenting tools and we need to look at, um, at why and, and not just discipline in the moment, even though we're like, we're, we're taught not just when we're angry, but I think you need to look at the child and their anger and not mm -hmm. discipline when they're angry. I think disciplining mm -hmm. a child when they're angry is not helpful in any way, whether they have a sensory processing disorder or not, it just makes them more angry. And I, I just think we need more tools on how to, how to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly yeah. Right. More, more, more skill and, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, more a, a better under. Yeah, a better understanding of how children grow and develop and how their minds work, right. for sure. Exactly. Um, that's, that's interesting. It segues right into this, this second part of the conversation that I was hoping to have tonight. I wish Matthew was with us. His computer froze up uh, halfway through, so that's why he's not here. Um, but uh, he was going to try to get it up and running, but I, it doesn't look like it's happening yet. Um, but what what I was just, I was just thinking about this ahead, ahead of the uh, live stream and wondering, are there, 
other principles you've learned in some of the things you've discussed there? Do you think they give us insight into communicating more broadly with other people who speak a different language um, spiritually or politically than we do? Um, how to how, connecting with people who are, you know, who are wrong or who are doing things we that are destru destructive um, and you have a really different way of looking at the world. Um, do you want to say anything about that? <laughs> well, I mean, we've all run, we all we all run into this on a regular basis. Hey, there's Titus. Um, I think he's on his phone in his car or something. He's in a dark world. But yeah. yeah um, so yeah, I mean, you and I have you and I have some really strong differences, but you know, we've we we run into people. I mean, the, 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 this is the times we live in. We get to encounter people all the time that just really see the world in really radically different ways that are hard to get your head inside how how they can think the things they think. So yeah, do the do these do these principles translate um, into those kinds of situations in ways that we could act on? Well, um, if you're talking about dealing with um, somebody who is radically uh, different in thought and all, um, in their belief system, their political um, viewpoint, yeah. Um, I guess the thing I've learned is, okay, listen, everybody has some good in there somewhere, including you, Anthony. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I also think that uh, I've pondered long and hard our relationship, Anthony, because you, when you wrote these questions here, had the question, um, and, and let me just get this uh, directly. You said, um, the talking about um, things that, that discuss, that you wanted to discuss, you mentioned something, I'm just not seeing it right now. But something about, a friend or relative um, with sharply different views from you. Right. Oh, and, you knew and what exactly makes... why you put that in there. Well, yeah. it, no, it actually wasn't meant to refer to our relationship. I was, I, I thought afterward, you're probably going to think that's what it is. But like, we all have multiple people like that. And not every, I think, I think in the times we're living in, not everybody even has anyone whom they actually like and respect who differs from them. Like we're so siloed, but I'm guessing that you have people like that and that I'm not the only one. Um, um, in fact, I can think of other family members, you know, and, and, and probably living in a place like you live in, there's some divergence of thought among your, your circle of friends and acquaintances and your network. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, any, anyone you have in mind, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you one thing that, um, actually loving someone, and I'm sure this is why Jesus put to love your neighbor as yourself. But loving someone really makes you want to understand and hear them a little better. And I think that's where I'm at with you, Anthony, is um, I, I just, there's just, I, I tell all my nephews and nieces this, that Anthony's just my favorite, um, my favorite nephew. In, and I, so I think there's that. Now he's grown into um, an ideology, grown up and has an ideology and a whole different view on life that is just like troubling to me because it is I'm just like oh Anthony do not go off the deep end here you know <laughs> but, but too, late. Because, too late for that what were you saying I said too late I know I should have followed you more closely when you were younger 
more pliable. And there was still uh, hope, yeah. <laughs> so, so I really think that, um, yes, I have, um, I deal with atheists all the time. I even have a student in my class who's atheist. I deal with those parents a lot. I have a, uh, you know, a friend who is an atheist. So, um, I, I actually have close uh, contact with Wiccans. You know, you're talking about uh, different um, ideas. I mean, I'm talking about far out, uh, you know, mm -hmm. on the spectrum there. And really, I, my um, principles of communication that I use with them, I don't know if you can even call them principles of communication because it's basically just let them, let them talk. You know, it's like you cannot... You cannot, this forum is set up so that you can um, talk about your views on things, but your normal conversations are not set up that way. So mm -hmm. it's, um, you, you can just come across as arrogant, as, you know, hot-headed or whatever, if you try to instill any common sense in these people, you know. So if, if we're talking about with the atheist if um, one of the things we have a problem with in our school, and so you're wondering how the school transfers over to that, in the school we have a problem because we teach science from the creation standpoint, you know, from the biblical worldview there. And um, that is really hard on parents. And so, yes, what I do when I deal with these kind of people, and mostly they're in my work, they're not really, um, one's a friend, but that's a friend that um, just became a friend um, because she was married um, in, into distant relatives. And um, so I really don't uh, try to bridge that gap. I, I listen to them and I know everybody thinks I'm terribly opinionated, but in 60 years, you do learn a few things. And one of those is when to interject your opinion and when not to. With the family, I don't think I've learned that yet, but with other people, um, like in the business world and all, and parents that I deal with, um, there's just a time, a time and a season for, um, yeah. and, and they'll, they're so quick to tell you, even like working with their children, I get the emails on exactly how I'm supposed to handle their child and what I'm supposed to do. And he can't, you know, don't make him pray at that, you know, lunchtime. And can you do this? Can you do that? And I just know through all the years that I'm not going to have a problem with that child. If mom just lays off, you know, sure enough, my little atheist boy is praying and doing his thing now. And it, it's just because it doesn't mean he believes. He's like, lets us know all the time that God isn't taking care of him or that God's not going to answer the prayer. But he go, goes along with it. He doesn't need all the pullouts that mom thought he needed. So what I'm saying is your question on how I bridge that, just very professionally. I Because I, I don't have those people close in my life that are okay. that far out. The, you know, Anthony, the closest person to me um, with the most divergent views is you <laughs> and your family. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, and, and so it's been, I've, I've, I've done a lot of um, soul searching uh, during these COVID times. So I've had more time to, to be on the computer and, and thinking about, you know, things you say and all and, and, views. I've listened to this podcast uh, several times and I, um, and I realized that I, I think it's funny how I'm 60 and I still have to come to terms with some of this stuff. I'm like, wait a minute. I've kind of gone through my forties and fifties 
um, without any new thoughts and ideas on, on what I believe. I've just been very comfortable in it. And now spending more time listening and reading up on things that um, other viewpoints want to be, I'm, I'm finding that, whoa, maybe I am too comfortable in what I believe and maybe I should give more time and thought to, to other people's views and other people's, you know, how, what got them there? Why, why do they believe that? You know, actually I've been exposed to some Christian uh, views um, during this last year that I never even knew existed. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't even, I didn't even know, uh, this is going to sound really like I'm not even in the spiritual realm, but I didn't even know anything about this whole thing that you guys are talking about where it comes to, um, Jesus, um, going to the poor and, um, working with the poor. And after there was a big conversation, I think on, on your Facebook page, Anthony, on this, maybe it was your mother's and you know how our, our responsibility Jesus is, is to the poor among us and without that you know that the thought of the, on the Facebook page of whoever wrote was more like that I got out of it was more like that is what is the most important in our lives is um, you know taking care of the poor I had never ever ever even contemplated that and mm -hmm. Although I argued it vehemently on that Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, as one does. Of, do you remember that? I, I don't remember that specific conversation. I just said, as one does, though. Yes. <laughs> I, but I did privately um, research that and really looked into uh -huh. it. And I don't think I believe it to the extent, I don't think I came to the conviction to the extent that mm. um, a lot of you have it, but it was just a whole new thought to me. And, and so I started looking at things. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, Jesus really did, but I don't want to go too far there or I become, you know, a socialist, you know, uh, leftist. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think that's that, that polarization where like, you know, if you adopt views that are unpopular with, a particular camp well then you're automatically that can't you know part of the other camp it's an enemy like that's one of the things that i think is really pulling society apart is because we're so afraid to believe anything that sounds like the other um that the question stops being is it true and becomes you know is does it fit my tribe and yeah, that's, I think, a great reason to have conversations across these divides, because, you know, that's, that's something that if, if we're forced to be liberals, for instance, if we, like, if we're going to be pushed out, I'm, I'm a social conservative, like in virtually by any measure, you know, I believe marriage is between one man and one woman for life. I, you know, I'm 100%. I think abortion is a, is a horrible, crying evil um, and, and, you know, I, you know, there's, there's virtually no measure of social conservatism that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't tick the box for. Um, but you know, if, if we, if we are, if we're told that, you, you know, to believe this, this one or two things makes you a liberal, well, then you end up by a lot of people, I think, end up feeling like, okay, this must be, these must be my people. And that's like leftist politics is not Christian any more than than I think far right politics is, um, because like the, Jesus taught about more things than just how we treat the poor, for instance. Like that's mm -hmm. 
but it's good to understand that when people on the left are claiming, you know, Jesus is on our side, it's because he did talk about those issues and they're latching on to them and saying, oh, this is something Jesus talked about and you're ignoring it and we're not. So we're right. They're ignoring other things that Jesus spoke about. And ultimately, you know, let's, let's just follow Jesus. And, and I think that we can, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot more common ground I've found with people when you get them kind of off by themselves. Like you said, that, that Facebook battle dynamic where, where you're in the public square, you know, and all your friends are watching and you're duking it out. Like there's a lot of face saving that just has to happen in a situation like that because of how our brains work. And and it, when when you when you sit down over coffee with somebody, it's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, you, you know you can't abs you can't turn each other into an abstraction of evil nearly as evil easily. But we're actually we're, we're freer as everyone knows we're just freer to say things to each other on the internet that we would not say sitting face to face. You know the keyboard yeah. is we've got all that between us. But yeah. you know you you did say. When really it just gets down to like Jesus teachings, but that sounds really simple, but there's a lot of, that's, that's, it's not just that simple because everybody reads differently what Jesus teachings are. Right. We all bring suppositions, presuppositions to them from our upbringing or yeah, whatever. And, and just, and you know, there's things that Jesus said that if you understand first century near Eastern culture, all of a sudden, you know, they pop, they pop with meaning that you didn't know was there. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lifelong process of, of learning to understand, understand him. And it's not like we need all of that background in order to obey because right. a lot of things are just perfectly clear. Uh, well, but, but see, you think it's perfectly clear, but somebody else might not find that perfectly clear. Like, obviously to you is perfectly clear. It's perfectly clear that um, Jesus was like, really went to the poor and that was his ministry or if i'm interpreting that correctly mm-hmm. that's not like so clear to me see what mm-hmm. i'm saying we read the same bible well mm-hmm. i don't know what version you're reading honey but i'm reading the king james okay so so uh <clears throat> i've read several different ones um and we won't go into into the details on that but but uh but if, if you read the King James, you know, that that's common ground for most of us. We can all agree on, mm-hmm. on that. What's in the King James is, is probably true. So, so uh, if, if we, and T- I wish Titus was here because Titus has this concept of, of mere devotion, which is basically here are the things that all Christians agree on six points, I think. And I don't know if I can name them all here, but it's like um, um, evangelism, prayer, um, I'm going to get it wrong, but the, um, the scripture, um, I think service to the poor is one of them. I mean, that has historically been, been pretty broadly understood by the church. Even today, most churches have some sort of outreach that's responsive to that sense that Jesus does care about the the vulnerable. Um, and so, so, so there are a lot of those things that you could find, you know, a Christian anywhere on the Christian spectrum. They pretty much agree that some of those basics are, you know, a, a key part of Christianity. So when I say things are perfectly clear, those are the things I'm thinking about. I know we have a lot of disagreements around the edges, but it's worth noting how much we really do all have in common still. Um, yeah. 
but well, see what you said about churches. That's one thing I think that the Baptist church, independent churches that run the Sunday school buses and, you know, yeah, they do. And I've been there for 26 years. So yes, they do go into the highways and the byways. It's just that we, and they care for the poor. We have like the clothes closet and the largest uh, food bank in Clackamas County is at our church, you know, the outlet for that. Um, and we bus in um, five to 600 children every Sunday on our Sunday school buses. And we, um, we have programs where we go in and we just go down to Skid Row and just load up uh, homeless people on the bus, bring them in for a meal all the way in, you know, which is like a 20 minute drive back to our church. And so, so yes, we do things like this, um, but we don't hear our preachers, we don't hear over the pulpit that um, it's just really not taught that Jesus um, is concerned with the poor. I mean, we like you said, every church just kind of has that. That's what basis of Christianity. But your level of that, Anthony, is different. Like the way you guys bring that out is you're putting a much higher uh, priority. Like his whole work was that from what I was getting in that conversation. And that is yeah. not, you know, I'm, that is not the way that we basically view it. We we know that there's poor and we help the poor because that's the thing to do, but we don't put it at that priority. You get what I'm trying to say here? I, I yeah, I'm, I'm. It's interesting to me that that's that that's. I wish I remember the conversation that that we're discussing, but um, you know, I would I certainly would not say Jesus' whole work was you know aid to the poor, particularly not material aid to the poor. Um, although he did a lot of this, you know, hanging out with down and out people and, uh -huh. and blessing them. And, and, you know, his, his followers were known for that from the start. In fact, one interesting thing, an early Christian quote, I don't remember who said it, Matthew might remember, um, was when the pagans, when the pagans were accusing the Christians of not supporting the gods, um, because they wouldn't go to the temples anymore. And like the whole system of nationalistic religion, um, the civil religion wasn't being supported by them. Um, some of the same accusations that people like me get today, in fact. But uh, the, 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 one of the Christians re responded with this quip, you know, if Jupiter needs more funds, he should sit out by the street with a, and as a beggar, and then he'll get money. Um, the, the point was that we're like, we're giving to people, we're giving to people that need it all the time. So beggars, beggars know that they can count on us to su help support them. Um, and, and they could say that and know that, that their enemies didn't have a response to that because they were known as that, those sorts of people. So that's, you know, there's, there's that really kind of, of, this this was definitely an integral part of what Christians did, but it wasn't that your material needs are the whole deal. It's that like there's a holistic. Um, I know I just used a liberal word there, but there's but holistic in the sense that it encompasses everything. Salvation is something that renews the whole world, the whole person, and so part of that is meeting each other's material needs and not need. You know, I can trust you. I can, it's easier for me to trust you that you have something to offer my soul if you've demonstrated you care enough to meet the needs of my body. Right. Matthew, you looked like you had something to say. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry I, I dropped out. My computer froze up on me and I had to work my way back in. But it's in, it's an interesting conversation because I, when I grew up in the Baptist church, we had we had we had ministries for the poor and there was a general concern for those things. I think that my experience with in the fundamental independent Baptist churches was that that those things were a part of being a good human. Like they were like, don't steal and don't tell lies. They were just a part of being a good person. I think what what changed my paradigm is in looking at the New Testament and seeing what the function of 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 ministry to to poverty actually plays in the gospel narrative. Like when Jesus, when, when John's disciples come, he's in a prison cell rotting away, wondering if he made a mistake. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and they say, art thou the one or look we for another? And there's three confirmations of his Messiahship that the, the, the blind receive sight, the lame walk and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. It, it's a part of who he was. And now see, there's where it's at. I don't know what you're talking about from your church, but when you said like you do it because it's part of being a it's the poor having the gospel preached to them. Like mm. like when we bring them in, right? They have to hear they have to hear the plan of salvation taught before they right. get fed. So I think that is a big. I think it'd be a. Uh, I'm sticking up for the Baptists here. I think that would be a disservice <laughs> to say they're just doing it because it's um, it's what you do as a good person. I know for our church, my church has about two thousand people in it. Um, for my church, it's more, they're doing it and it's 100%. They're doing it to, te- for the, uh, you know, present the plan of salvation to them. Uh, I, 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 you're, you're right. That's a mischaracterization. That's, that's an overstatement, but I, I, I didn't see the poor as valuable to God. I, I saw them as people that needed help. And, and maybe that's more what I'm getting at is that the poor become the central thesis, like Luke six, the sermon, on the plain it says blessed it doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit it says blessed are ye poor it's a different sermon and he he's in and i think the the point that i had missed for a long time was the great inversion that jesus was flipping the world upside down that for all of human history we were all trying to get to the top and jesus is reversing thing and says everything that you guys have esteemed and valued i'm running it the other way like you go to the bottom of the pyramid of humanity, that's the people who I'm interested in. And so that framework was was pivotal, pivotal to me when I began to embrace a new, when I, when I came out of the evangelical world, which you and I are crossing different directions, but when I came out, it was some of those realizations. And then Peter's, um, well, the Jerusalem Council's, uh, their, their requirement to, to endorse Paul's ministry as he was going out, was that he should not forget to, to minister to the poor. So these, it, it does become a central thesis for who the Christian people are. And I don't think it's about, I don't think it's primarily about meeting needs. I think it's primarily about two things. I think it's about reorienting Christian people's relationship to stuff. One, that's, that's on the side of the church. And on the side of the world, it's about inverting our, who, what we esteem and what we think is important. Yeah. And, and James talks about that too. He's, you know, he, he, he gives that scenario where a wealthy person comes in and, and you, you know, give him the best seat and you're so glad, so glad he's there, you know, and come back again and see us. And, and then the poor person comes in and you give him a spot over by the side, and you know, keep him out of the way. 
And like, that is just the way people are. That's how we are by default. Um, there's something, there's some kind of halo that forms around someone who's wealthy. Um, and we just value them more. And that's, and that's like fundamentally in a pagan society, that's the way it is. And so there's something really counterintuitive about that idea that we're all elevated to equals. In fact, Jesus seems to, you know, pronounce special blessings on the poor for all, you know, reasons that we could conjecture about. But, but yeah, I think that inversion is a really, is a really important thing. Like the world really is upside down. And I think there are things that, you know, maybe things that we can only understand if we've been poor, you know, if we're, if we're in that sense of vulnerability and need in some really, or, or, or if we have close relationships with people who are, who experience that. Anthony, are there any poor in America? Are there any true poor? Yeah. My answer uh, is yes. no. No. My well, no. uh, well, you, you would need to define poor before you could answer that question. I think when Jesus um, says go to the poor, um, I don't think that we have a concept of what the poor are. All of our poor have government programs put in place for them. So, yes, they get um, one of the reasons we have so many poor is largely alcohol and drugs. And their choices have made them poor in America. I do not, and I know lots of people disagree with me on this, but as I watch things go along and happen in life and with the people, I'm like, you know, you take a missions trip somewhere and my son went to Nicaragua and our pastor and a bunch of people went over to the Philippines several times into India, not to where the tourists go, but you know, deep into the country. The poverty level there is just unreal here okay i maybe this is okay so when i left the mennonite church i had no idea what life was like outside of the mennonite church mm -hmm. it was the only way i can say it is i was up in the mountains ways you know away from everybody. it was a big thing to go seven miles into town to the little um town of Esacado with a population of 900 so what happened is when I came out of the Mennonite church, it was like learning another culture. It was as if I would have came from, you know, Korea or, you know, some, I learned a different culture right. and it was shocking to me. I didn't know they have a whole language that they speak in the world that we didn't speak in the church and another way of dressing. And, um, it was just, it was just shocking to me. And then I'm thrown into college on top of that, of my own choice. But here's what I want to tell you that maybe has colored everything. I was in low-income housing um, going to college. I didn't know even government programs even existed. Why should I know that? The Mennonite church, we were poor, very poor in our standards that we have here in America. And, um, you know, the 50-pound bags of cereal said right on them, unfit for human consumption. It was horse food, and we ate it. Um, it was like we were poor. And... I am um, poor by our standards, not poor by third world countries. And I got into, I found out about all these programs. I just marveled at all the government programs that were put in place for people who were low income. I grabbed a hold of those programs. Now, I, I, to me, I don't like someone coming in from another culture, no idea what to do. 
I moved out of my parents' home with a rocking chair and a sleeping bag and a $400 old green station wagon. I forget what it even was. But anyway, and just thrust out here to make it on my own. I was able to get, take advantage of government programs, get my textbooks paid for. I got grants from the state under the hardship uh, rule that this college had in place because my parents, I think it's three years, uh, you, that they claimed you have to be three years at that time free of their taxes without them putting you on the taxes. So, um, so basically I could not go to college without them paying for my college. Well, when I told them they would not do that for because of religious reasons, um, they didn't really want this higher education. Um, they said, well, that's just a hardship clause right there for religious reasons. And so I ended up getting all these grants and things to help me through. But let me say that one of the things that I researched on my own and found was that, wait, well, the government's providing housing. You don't have any money, you can get a place. I paid $7 a month rent. This was in the eighties, but even that's incredibly low. I paid $7 a month rent for my house. I got um, $90 check from the government um, to live on for the month. And I got uh, food stamps of $350 a month. And it was that and my school loans and I was a single parent. Um, so I had this three-year-old when I started college. So then I had daycare, figured out the state would pay for my daycare. And when I, while I went to college, I held down three part-time jobs. Uh, one was writing for the college newspaper. Another, I was a columnist there, the only paid columnist on there. Um, the other one was working for my parents. And while I was going to college, I took a three-day course um, in Beaverton down here to um, be a professional nanny. So I worked as a professional nanny for rich people at Lake Oswego, multi-million dollar homes, and worked weekends in the catering business and wrote for the school newspaper to support us, um, along with my $90 check and my school loans, I mean, my school grants. I would leave my apartment in government housing in those fall mornings. There would sit those, and I've been told I'm judgmental for this, but I'm telling you, this is what I saw. There sit those parents in their port on their porches, smoking. Their moms are in their robes, their gowns, you know, and the children are running around in underwear, not dressed, and you know, clutter everywhere, and they're yelling at their kids. And you know, I'd go to school and I'd work all day at school. There was a, a campus daycare for my daughter, which too was government funded. And so I only had to pay like $160 a month for uh, daycare. When I would come home after, and, and college was hard, you guys, I, I didn't have a day of high school. So we're not talking someone that was just like brilliant and went from, you know, uh, 12th grade straight into college. No, I had last I had gone to school was 1972 and we are uh, 12 years old and we are now at 1986. And um, yes, I had taught in private schools during that time with my eighth grade education. But what I'm saying is I went there and I'd work hard all day to understand what kids were just like totally getting from high schools and public schools. And it's all new to me. And um, I didn't even know that uh, anything about 
in, in terms of Japanese Americans. I didn't really understand, no, the Vietnam War was going on, what was going on when I was a kid. I didn't even know this stuff. And so all this was just brand new. And I'd go and I'd soak this all in. And I carried 17 to, 220, uh, 17 to 22 credit hours um, with a GPA of like 3.5. One term, I really tried for four point and I got it, but I felt like I had neglected my daughter too much to do that. So it wasn't that important for me to get the four points. So I didn't try that hard again. I just stayed kind of with that 3.5 so I could get into universities. Um, and then I'd come home and I'd walk right past those very same women in the doorways, the very same men in the doorways of their government funded housing, still smoking their cigarettes and snorting their drugs. This is what I'm telling you. This actually goes back to the home. Um, I, I can't even tell you how firmly I believe the home is the basis of everything. Um, these these people, many of them are third and fourth generation welfare people, you know, mm -hmm. or even beyond that. There they sat living off the government. And I can remember one lady, especially every morning, there you go again. She'd say to me, there you go again, off to college. Where do you really think that's going to get you? And then everybody would laugh. I just, you know, keep walking. I, at one time I said, well, get me off my porch anyway, you know, and that didn't go over very well. But um, <laughs> I, okay, so then I graduate and um, I could tell you right now, there are two people we're talking the eighties. I was in my twenties. I'm now 60. There are two people that are still, I know for a fact are still in that housing development. Why? We, there is no, our poverty is a chosen poverty in the United States. They are choosing that. If I can come in with an eighth grade education, no idea of how this world functions out here. For example, the college uh, um, counselor that you know took me in for my missions and called me in, he asked me, um, okay, so let me see your transcripts. I'm like, what's a transcript? I'd never heard of it before. He, and he just looked at me, what do you mean? I go, what's a transcript? Well, then let me see your, your GPA. I don't know what a GPA is. Well, how many credits do you have? I've never heard of a credit. Well, then did you get a GED? I don't know what a GED is. And I mean, this just went on until he was just baffled. I'm like, okay, stop with the throwing the letters at me. I want to go to college. And he said to me, how do you think you're going to go to college when you don't, and by then he had found out that I didn't have any high school or anything. He goes, how do you think you're going to go to college? And I said, I'm going to go to college because this is America. And in America, we can do anything. So you are going to put me through college. You are going to tell me how to go to college. That's why I'm here. And he said, you know what? He said, I hear you, you're right. This is America. I am the one to tell you how to go to college and we will do this. And we did it. And I went to college. That's what I mean. I'm just, I just have, and oh, I almost said mm, the wrong thing. Let me tell you what I almost said, but didn't say. I have no sympathy <laughs> for what's happening. I just, I, I didn't say that. I almost said it, but, but I just Tammy, don't have you, you've said, you've said two contradictory things to me. You've said that there are no poor, and then you explained how you were exactly the poor that those programs were designed to help. I said America poor. I'm poor as far as America goes, but that's not poor. Well, why is it not? I mean, what would have happened? What would your life have been like without those programs? I would have had jobs um, that would have that I would have been able to get into that would have paid a decent wage that where I wouldn't have needed these programs to support me. 
In other words, I, I think that our so jobs- So they weren't necessary for your future success? I have not used my college at all for future success. Not at all. Um, the, the other I thing that seems the route I had to go. The, the other thing that seems self-contradictory about your statement is that you, you said that the home is the key. Well, you came from a very different home than those people that were next yes. to you. The, if if the that. home is the key, then those three generations of being in those environments is poverty. What uh, that I, is, is, is deprivation. What that, what, what it is, is, um, uh, okay. I actually know a girl who has six children, each from a different father, each space two years apart. Because when you're two years old, your child's two years old, you've got to start looking for jobs in the state of Oregon. Back then, that was the rule. I don't even know what it is now. But when your children were two years old, you had to like at least six places. You had to, you know, put a, a job application into, and you had to go and start thinking about going to work. So every two years, she had a baby, and she made no beans about it that that's why she was doing this. Now, this is what I'm saying. Yes, I came from a decent home, and. That is, I had someone tell me just this week in this very same type of conversation. And she said, yes, but you met your husband and married him. And he was influential in lifting you up to, to where you're at financially and successfully today. After the government programs did. After the government programs. So see, there's always, but here's the thing. I met my husband because I had gone to college and because, and, and remember, I did work in college. You know, I did the, did work through that. But I met him because I was in college. I met him because, and I could have, I still had the choice to say, no, I was, I'm not going to date you. No, I'm not going to marry you. It all, even though I married him and yes, it bettered me financially and, and gave me a different social status. Um, and he helped me through a lot of this transition. Um, it doesn't it still is my choice to marry him. I'm still making a choice. And what I'm saying is with these government programs, these people are making a choice to stay there. When you go to the Philippines, they don't have these choices. They are- I, I disagree with both of those statements. Oh, I'm I, sure you do. I, I've worked extensively in Uganda and, and our community is in a neighborhood that is not where white people are. We live in, in, in a Ugandan community. Um, and I've worked with a lot of people from that neighborhood who, who can't get over their gambling or their drinking addiction, but their gambling and drinking addiction is because their life is miserable. That's the exact same reason they, it is here. I mean, people don't wreck their lives for fun. There, there are incentive structures that cause people to make the decisions they make. And that doesn't mean that there's not personal responsibility, but it means that that's not the only consideration. And if you, if you look at your, your child born homeless in a new, get, new Delhi ghetto or a child born in a ghetto in America on a couch with a different man in his house, in, in her house every week and her mother passed out on drugs or, 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 or alcohol, they're both poor in the exact same way. And they both have a broken life in the exact same way. And to tell the American child born in that home that they don't understand poverty, I think is totally missing the point. Well, I would never tell the child that. I would tell the parent that. Um, the difference- Well, but what about when the child grows up and because of that well, lifestyle has made similar decisions? Exactly. The, the parent might be a child like that at 17 years old. And I, you know, that's, that's the situation you're looking at. You know, she never, she, she was, she was home trying to take care of her 
three younger siblings while her mom was passed out. And that's why she never got any schooling and doesn't know anything, you know, and doesn't, can't hold a job either. Right. Um, if she's still in the home, I'm talking about the child that is now an adult and on their own. For them now to be in poverty is a choice that they are making because here's the difference between Uganda and here. Yes, there's the drugs and alcohol. Addiction is the same everywhere. Here in the United States, you have programs to help get you out of that. You have the gospel is everywhere. Church is everywhere. It's a salvation experience. You know about these things. You have the internet with resources galore to help you over this addiction. Um, and, and most of all, you have um, <clears throat> access to the gospel, salvation experience, Jesus to help you. They don't have that in Uganda. <clears throat> That's a whole different thing. Here, if you're choosing this um, for your life, you're, it's a choice. It's just a choice. I, you can so, be an adult and, but, and say, well, it's generational. Well, get yourself out of it for heaven's sake. So there's another, it, there's another point to be made here, I think, also like there's two things being two two claims that you're making that can each be addressed from both ends. I think they're both wrong. One is that the one is that the poor that we have in the United States, it's it, that it's fully a matter of their choice. Like that they don't, they, that nothing Jesus said about the poor applies to them because they don't count as real poor. The second one is that the poor of Jesus' time were radically different from the poor of our time in that way. If you think that's the case, go read Proverbs, which was written in exactly that culture, in exactly that place, centuries before Christ. It's full of exactly the things you're just saying to us. Like the, it says, I went by the field of the slothful man, and the, and the wall was all broken down. And the, I quote that often. Weed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so like Jesus was steeped in this wisdom and so was everyone in his audience. They all knew what poor people were like. People, poor people are really the same in pretty much every age and place. Um, you, you find the very same patterns, the very same generational sins cycles, cycles um, playing themselves out. And like, like you said, it's, you know, the, the child who has a learning disability comes into your school, they get a great education maybe from you, but they have, you know, they have parents that just don't have what it takes to give them what they need at home. And maybe that's like you said about, about my grandpa, because they don't know any better. No one ever gave them the skills. So that's a form of poverty that is much more impactful on that child's life mm -hmm. than 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 even monetary poverty and usually usually i think in every age that that the real poverty the real poor i mean the, the people that are really down and out are people who have you know they have economic issues but they usually have them because all these other things lie behind it i'm not sure that it's really changed that much and i think that's one of the misconceptions that allows us to kind of shrug off what Jesus said, because we're imagining that they had some kind of, you know, shiny, precious moments, poor people, you know, with sad eyes and a patch on the robe. Um, and they were just little saints, but that's not how poor people have ever been. No, no, I, I just, I just don't think that there's another country, maybe Europe or something that has so many 
programs to help these people if they want help. And, and that's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that we shouldn't help them. Of course we should help them. You know, like I said, the church programs that we have, even me, I have stopped and bought a meal for someone that I've seen along the road, you know, saying they're hungry with their sign. Um, I, being on welfare, of course, I met a lot of, of our poor uh, people here in America and I helped a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but I also know that they took their food stamps and exchanged it for drugs and then came to me for food stamps because I knew how how to use my food stamps so what i so but then again there's programs for them to learn how to use the food stamps and how to manage and how to i'm just saying there's just such a plethora of of information and programs and wealth of information here that other countries do not have that i just don't see an excuse here to be poor i see sin as a big reason why we have poor among us and and it's it's um so largely it goes right back to um, what I'm saying, my church, how they reach the poor is bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, because um, the devil never wants you to to get ahead in any way. He'd love to keep you at this level ensnared in drugs and alcohol. So you're never effective at anything. And so I, there again, that's why the church's job is to go in the world and preach the gospel, free them from sin. And, and I think that when they actually uh, get a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the work he does in his life and get involved, get discipleship and get involved in, in groups that, that um, with Christian people, you don't see a lot of those kind of people out there homeless and on the streets and defecating on the sidewalks. And um, they're just really what makes the difference is Jesus. That's the difference between third world countries and America even. Um, and, and I know some of these countries uh, someone put in the con comments that, yeah, your God is 84% Christian. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, okay. But that Uganda is nowhere near where we are at with our, um, I, I'm speaking at class levels, uh, financial class, you know, social classes. Um, they've got their own caste system and their own classes, of course. But America, United States is leading. Well, who knows what's going to happen, but we, we are leading in all of this. And so Uganda is not close to where we're at. Um, and and I, what I'm just saying is we've got a church on every street corner. I, the basics is we have poor United States poor. This is my opinion. We have United States poor um, because of sin and not because of um, we're not barefoot in the hills in some dusty, you know, hill area and, and walk five, 10 miles to church. Hey, walk out your door and you can find a church, you know, it's like, you can also find programs by walking out your door. I'm just, I, I, I'll say it. I just really don't have sympathy for it. I'm sorry. I just don't. And I, I will help them. But I don't see them anymore. Do you think that lack of empathy that people of your socio your your and my socioeconomic status have for poor people might have anything to do this is a hard question but might have anything to do with the fact that they're not flocking into the churches no um i i don't think so i don't mine doesn't um i do believe that a lot of these pastors of these mega churches yeah it's like what is their motive for helping them? Sometimes it is to get church members and to, you know, benefit their church. Well, no, what I'm I saying is we think, if we think the church has the answer, 
if we think the church has the answer, like what kind of orientation toward the poor is going to attract them? You know, that's, well, that's, that's why we question. bring them. That's why we bring them in a feed and clothe them, because that will attract them. Mm-hmm. And then, but then we make sure that they hear the plan of salvation before we let them take them back down and skid row. You know. But- it, it seems like your general disposition and where I would, uh, I, I, I do appreciate your, your desire to help people. Uh, that's obvious mm-hmm. uh, and kudos. But I think the, the problem that, that from my perspective is that you, you, you still don't seem to l- be looking and talking about people in poverty the way that Jesus does. It's no, like I- you're wrong. You have something wrong with you. It's all about your sin. And if you would just get right with God, then you wouldn't be in this situation. And I don't think that that covers the gap that poverty actually lives in. Like when I see Jesus talking about the poor, who presumably have all the same problems the poor today do, he, he doesn't take that attitude. It's uh, it's not a who, who sinned, this man or his parents. It's uh, I care about you where you are. I don't need to fix you to care about you. I don't, I'm not trying to make you something different so that you have value. You have value as you are right there, right where you are. Exactly. I'm just saying that the reason we have the poor in America is due to sin and uh, lack of uh, knowledge of Jesus. Presumably we have the poor everywhere in the world because of sin. Like, I don't think that poverty Mm -hmm. could exist in a world without sin. Like you wouldn't have it everywhere. There has been poverty for all of human history. It's been because someone's selfish with resources, not because the earth is out of resources. You have Christians in deep, far deeper poverty than our sinners here in America. You have Christians in far deeper poverty in other countries. And, um, and, what I'm saying is they don't live like those without Christ at that same structure. When I see poverty, I just like, okay, so when Christ comes in, when Jesus comes into your life, poverty is a whole different experience. Yes, you're poor, but see, see, um, I live right here by Portland with all this rioting, which is really, really just, you know, torn down statues, ruined businesses, many small businesses that might have totally gone under never to reopen again. And in through it all, the homeless people have been able to just, now they're just taking over because, I mean, there's huge homeless camp the mile down the road from me. Um, Our freeways are just homeless tents and litter and just all this stuff, you know, it's just like they're trash. They just throw it everywhere. Christians that are in poverty, their camps don't, wouldn't look like that. They're cleaned up. You can go over there and you can see the communities where the Christians live versus where those that live that are down in addiction and and drugs and alcohol. Same with over here. What I'm saying is that that's why I'm saying that Jesus makes a difference. But yes, you can still have poor Christian people, but they get delivered from addictions and therefore they are end up being more successful, however you define success, than those who are still in sin. And that's how sin affects that. That's all <laughs> You're saying. not going to get any argument for us that Christians live with less sin than people <laughs> who don't, who aren't. Uh-huh. That, that's I, I'm for not, sure. I, I just see, I, I don't know, I, I think my own experience with that, I'm sure, has colored how I 
how I look at things. And I see that my sister in the comments mentioned, um, have you ever taken a look at where you were when you met Greg and where you might be if he hadn't come into your life? Um, no, I was, so she is basically telling me too that it's, it's my husband. What I'm telling you is that um, I went to college and I would have had to use that college degree mm -hmm. if I wouldn't have met him. Yes, I would have. But it was still a choice I made to go with him and to date him and to choose him. I had lesser people, you know, ask me out on dates. I could have chosen those. I could be in American poverty today if I'd have made the choice to marry that other person. And so I just think that, I don't know, when I see, I remember as a kid, we'd go down to the rescue mission down here um, and you'd sit up on the stage and you'd, you know, in the Mennonite church, you'd sit up on the stage in the rescue mission and outside are the drunkards and inside are the dirty men and, and, you know, chasing bugs across their arms and smashing them. You can hear them pop from the, you know, we were just fascinated as kids with all of this stuff going on windows being broken right in the middle of the church service because of drunk people in the streets. And, and that was my definition. That's how I saw poverty. And I never thought of myself, um, mm -hmm. you know, as poor, even though by world standards, we were very poor. Mm -hmm. I remember my mom didn't have a pair of shoes. Like we should go out and feed the pigs and she'd be barefoot. I mean, we were poor, but I never thought of us as being poor, like I did the people down on Skid Row. They were the poor people. And now mm -hmm. I look at this, they, there's all sorts of programs that weren't there in the 60s. When they're down there now, let's do something with them. You know, it's like, oh, this is, you guys are not gonna, I just, I just don't like seeing them on the streets and everything. I just think they need to, we need more homes, more places for them, but then they don't even want to go in off the streets. They're making these choices. You know, you, you open up a, a house for them. You have organizations come in, build houses for them. No, they don't want to go into those houses. They don't want to get off the streets. They don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to work. Um, and I just, I just don't have a lot of sympathy for that. So yeah, that's just where I'm at in that. Uh, I do have a lot of sympathy for it. I, I was homeless for a time. And, and when I was first converted, I, I worked in the homeless community and I have over the years. And the, the level of addiction, mental health disorders, and, and just broken traumatic lives causes me to have a lot of sympathy for people that are living in those. And it's not that I, I, don't, I don't understand that their choices are contributing to their situations. But it's not any different when I'm in Uganda. When I'm in Uganda, in the face of poverty, there are choices that people make that are that are not consistent with their best interests. I make choices sometimes that are not consistent with my best right. interests and my best future. Mm -hmm. So, so I I think the pushback where I would I would love if I could change your mind would be in the sympathy component. Like they they are sympathetic, and and I think that's how God sees them here's the thing that I think about judgment. Judgment is not so much, I'll just tell you my personal philosophy. Judgment is a big, scary thing. 
and there's a there's a lot of horrible things that are going to happen in the judgment but the main overarching premise of the judgment from my perspective theologically is is not so much about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell it's about setting the accounts right it's about it's about taking all of god's knowledge and comprehension of all the rights and responsibilities and privileges and opportunities and liabilities and hurts that people have had in their life and drawing a sum line at the bottom of the life and saying here's where you are in, re in relation to all those things. And our prohibition of judgment is because we can't do that calculus, that it takes the, the, the infinite wisdom of God and his knowledge of all things in order to make that judgment. And so when, when that God tells me to be sympathetic to the poor, I don't have the calculus to figure out what kind of trauma people have in their lives. I don't know their mental health state. I don't know whether, why they're addicted to drugs. I just know that they're in need. And that's the thing that's supposed to evoke a sympathy response in me. And I know that you feel that because you wouldn't have done the things that you said you've done if you didn't. And to be frustrated with the situation that causes poverty, I think is a good mm -hmm. thing. Like we should want to resolve the dilemma. <laughs> But to not to lose touch with the humanity of poverty, to lose touch with the sympathy, and 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 my my mother-in-law, you know, my my wife ran away when she was 15 years old and lived on the streets. Uh, it was '96; those really bad floods they had in Portland. She was homeless during that time. She was almost underwater in a park. As a 15-year-old, she's probably 85 pounds soaking wet. 15-year-old girls who are 90 pounds do not run away from home because home is a great place. There right. were problems. And, right. and, and, and that's a sympathetic creature, right? You see, a, you see an 80-pound 15-year-old girl living in a park and you, you know something's wrong. But, but her life could have gone so many different directions from there. And she could be so many different people than she is now. And I used to be very critical of my mother-in-law that, that, that her home produced the environment that my wife ran away from. Even though she's a very kind woman and I love her very much, I, I, I used to, in our early years of our marriage, be very critical of my mother-in-law. And at a certain point, I realized I come from a very stable home. And, and I realized if my mother had been put through the situation that my mother-in-law had been put through, not only would she not have done as well, she would have likely done worse. And, and to consider her life from her perspective changed my analysis of, of my critique of her. And I think you can do that with any of these people in these situations if you take time enough to get to know them. Okay, let me tell you something. I too have been homeless. It doesn't change how I feel about this. What I'm saying is if I can come and into America because I was in a subculture of America, if I can come into America and I can find ways to do this, sure, I never got addicted to anything. And I can find all these programs to help me. These, these people are, are poor today. I'm not talking about the mentally ill. That's a whole different, um, yes, I have great sympathy for the mentally ill. In fact, um, if you look at my Goodreads or Kindle library, you will find many, many books on uh, mental health. I have a, a great compassion for people with um, mental health problems. I, I love the study of the brain on that and how that all works. And I have a lot of um, biographies and memoirs and autobiographies and scientific books on this. That to me is a whole different realm. Now, well, it's a huge percentage of your homeless neighbors. 
not my homeless, not my homeless neighbors, but the ones down, yes, the ones in downtown Portland, right. where we let go of our mental institutions and let them out right. and running around there. And I do have a great sympathy for them because they do not have a mind that can help them. Right. But you have people down there, literally, who we call poor and who are standing at the streets. And so we're handing the money out of our uh, Cadillacs, you know, out to these guys in the street. And really all they're doing is taking him back to the homeless camp. And in the homeless camp, you've got a pimp above them all. And he gives it to him. And then he doles out. They've got their own little government structure going on. And, and we call them poor. No, they're not. They have figured out ways to manipulate the system, to manipulate us. And because we are basically Christian in America, it's like, oh, give, 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 give. When... Um, if you watch, they'll go down and they'll get in some Cadillac somewhere and take off or, you know, Mercedes Benz and off they go. You know, I just, I just think that not those that are mentally ill, I think they stand on a whole different thing, but even those who are addicted, their mind is warped now, but there's choices for them. If you're mentally ill or you're born um, with, you know, um, like as a special ed kid, you know, where, where you're born with um, delays, handicapped that way, that's a whole different scenario. But when you have chosen the alcohol and you have chosen the drugs, and that is why you are mentally ill, and that then, then I, that's kind of where my sympathy ends. And I'm sorry about that. I'm just, no, I'm not. Um, I know I love them as Jesus loves them. I will take the gospel to them. I have given them food. I have taken in toilet paper, the bare necessities to these kind of people. So I well, still, how, how do you make, how do you make the differentiation between who's legitimately impoverished and who's not? Like when you got somebody in front of you America is legitimately, I don't think anything in America is legitimately impoverished. Unless, Didn't we just vindicate the, the poverty of the mentally ill? That's what I was going to say. Unless they do not have the, unless they're mentally ill or they're um, developmentally handicapped. So should and, we not help people unless we can make, I mean, should we not care about their situation? Should we not I have sympathy? That, like should we not have I sympathy unless we can make that distinction? No, I, I do. I care enough. Caring and sympathy are two separate things. Sure. Um, I care. I don't have sympathy. So I don't have empathy for that, but I care. The proof that I care is that, like I said, I've taken very basic needs to these people. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I helped many, many people out just because my lifestyle, uh, you know, being in living in these government housing and all during those years, I was just rubbing shoulder with them and I was forever helping them. Now that I'm better off, like we, we go to, um, we provide Christmas for our, my heart is with the college kids that are single parents because that's what I was. So we do Christmas for those kids. We take their name, go into their homes, give them, give them uh, stuff for their children and, and for the mom, um, even help pay for books. My husband and I do that um, here. I also uh, give to missions overseas too. Um, so, so I have a, a caring for that. But I don't really have, I still don't think they have a reason to be that way. Not in America. It's Western. interesting to me that the, the difference between your experience and mine. So both of us have come out of homelessness and, 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 and deep need by American standards. And your reaction to that is, I made it out so you can too. So 
get up by your bootstraps. And my reaction is, no, I totally get why you're there. I've been there. I, I understand it. And I understand the world that swirls around you. And maybe that's maybe, I, I don't know. We both came from, from decent homes too, but I think that maybe, um, I, 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 so there's a cycle of poverty, just like there's a cycle mm -hmm. of wealth. Um, you, you know, it's, it's called the Matthew principle. It's an, it's an economic principle. We, we know that it exists. It's a, it's a, it's a principle of human interactions that the, if you have advantage, you gain advantage in, in an almost exponential growth curve. And if you have disadvantage, you lose advantage in an almost exponential growth drop. Uh, and, and, and what I've seen in my life is that I understood that my, my choices, cause I, I didn't, I was much worse than my friends and my compatriots. Like I had a stable home, all the rest of the people in my gang, they were a mess. They belonged in the streets. I mean, they were literally bred for it. I, I was very different. I was much more lecherous than my friends because I didn't need to be there. I wasn't, I wasn't treated that way as a child and there was no reason for me to be on the streets, but I was. I very much made those choices, but I also knew that at a certain point, like the, the experience that I always remember is like, <clears throat> I, uh, I was working at a steel mill, um, about a year before I got married and, you know, we were, we were kids and we were carousing, we troublemakers and we were skinheads. We we're always in trouble with the law and everything, but I, but I was a working class kid and I had a, I had a job. I worked at a steel mill. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't pay my insurance. So then I was driving to work and I got a ticket for not having insurance. Well, I couldn't afford to pay it the first time. I can't afford to pay it now. So I keep driving to work. I get another ticket for my insurance. Then they suspend my license. Then I get a ticket for not having my license and yeah. having, <laughs> and, and, and then I get pulled over, you know, and all this stuff. And all of that was my fault. All of it was my choice. But I also feel every bit of the people that are in those kinds of cycles, when you look up from the bottom of the well of a, of your own making and you say, there's no way out. I might as well just keep going down. And I, I understand how sensible a reaction to a bunch of bad choices and bad decisions and bad luck all conspire against you. And you finally just throw up your hands and you say, I can't ever get out. I might as well just do whatever there is to do. Yeah. And I want to, I want to follow up on that. Cause um, I'm really big on, like personal responsibility and stuff. And I think, I think your story is really cool. Just simply saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it go of it. You could have, you could have done yeah. a lot of different stuff, but you didn't. And I think that's really cool. Um, but I, I feel like you're kind of making a little bit of a magical drawing a little bit of a magical line. Um, we were, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, you have a, you have a kid that grows up in a broken home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then they grow up. Now they're an adult. Now they're, let's say, 22. At some, at some point, suddenly they're responsible. And, and it doesn't work that way. Um, I was thinking back to the beginning of the conversation where you talked about the fellow on the, um, on the school board because they wanted another voice. And you said, well, you just, you just left the Mennonites. You, you, don't just, you don't just have a different perspective just two weeks later. And it's, it's the same way when you grow up in that. Like, your your whole thing i'm still as an adult and i i grew up in a in a decent home but 
I look back and I'm like, I got some philosophies from my parents or some ideas about the way the world works that mom and dad were just wrong about. And I'm 35 and I'm still deprogramming that and saying, you know, you hear mom's voice in your head or dad's voice. And you're like, no, that's actually not the way the world works. They were wrong about that. And I can't imagine how long you would have to spend if you grew up in a wrecked home like these people do, like to like it's your whole your programming is wrong like you have to re you have to recalibrate everything and i think it's easy to underestimate the 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 force of gravity that's pulling these people down that it takes some incredible will not just a one-day choice but to claw their way out and see the point um and i say this as somebody who's who worked with mentally handicapped people and you argue with them about the importance of making valuable choices and they don't see why it's important because they haven't seen the payoff yet. We have a lot of people that aren't mentally ill that have just much trouble seeing the payoff because it just, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Like Matthew, well, why should I pay my insurance? Why do I need to do this? This is, you know, that's going to mean, that's going to mean six, six weeks not going out with the boys or whatever. And screw that. I'm not going to do that. If I need to sit in jail weekend, I guess I'll have to do that. And like this, it's just a different mindset. Like for me, if I just sit the weekend in jail, I would, that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen. I'd be horrified. And there's some people, it's just, well, if you got to do that once in a while, it's just kind of the way the world works. And it's like, it's like this growing up in that thing just wrecks the way your, your mind works. Not, not your brain, the wiring, but the, your philosophy of life. Well, the wiring. And, yeah. The wiring physically changes under yeah, that, under trauma, and you know. The, so, so that's the, where I see. Yeah, it's not responsibility is part of it, but if we can do something to help them overcome that gravitational pull, that's yeah, it, it, like they, they need that. Yeah. Well, and one of the most powerful things that a person, I think, the word that hasn't come up here that we're kind of all talking around is hope. That's missing in these situations. If you have hope, you can. Un, uh, that that things can be better if you believe that you have the tools to to better your life and i think that's where both matthew and 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 you and tammy were were in this you had been brought up in such a way that you both had hope you knew that i can do x y and z and my life will go in the right direction people are in multiple generational situations where no one around them has ever had any hope that things can get better and, and, and if you don't have that, like there's no motivation and, and your brain actually rewires to just tell you, here's mm-hmm. what's, here's what you ought to do. Make a decision that, that gets you a, a reward you can count on. And the, the, the room I'm actually sitting in was occupied a couple of years ago by uh, several years ago by a homeless family that we took in. And I mean, everything you're talking about, like this cycle was just unbelievably just distilled in, in this, in this family where they had three children and, and, and were married about 30 years old. It was absolutely catastrophic situation. And we got in, you know, deeper earlier and deeper than we probably should have, because we're a little bit naive about these things. Um, And you know, all of the, you, you could see a million bad decisions, you know, that they were, you know, they were spending enough money on cigarettes. They could have easily paid rent on Mm. a cheap, on on cheap housing. Um, If they had just quit smoking, they were addicted to that. And, you know, it, they, I I try to help wean the guy off and it wouldn't work. And um, 
and and so and these children are growing up in that and you know he was just horrendously abusive and yet his his wife she had no place to go like she's a she herself had been she had been pimped out by her dad or her grandpa all during her growing up years um she was so traumatized by the time she reached adulthood that she was a sitting duck for anybody who would you know any strong male figure that looked like the tough guys she was used to being around um she had no capacity to make those kinds of decisions and one of the most potent ingredients in in and 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 we did we did not succeed with that family like you know we didn't get anywhere they they cost us a lot of money um and and ultimately i hope that my mom's involvement in their life was somewhat responsible for helping her to get out of that relationship ultimately or giving her the the courage to do what it took but but what i'm saying is if 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 hope is the ingredient and i think we could probably all agree that that's one of the things that gives you the ability to make the right choices because you think that it will make a difference um if that's the ingredient or a key ingredient one of the biggest things that gives people hope is having someone else believe in you knowing that you're valued um even though you haven't done anything to earn it which is exactly what the scripture says draws our love toward god because he when we were sinners, when we hadn't done anything to earn his, his love and affection, he died for us. He, he loved us. Like there was this, there was this compassion for us in our down and out stupid rebellious state where we were making all the wrong choices and, you know, walking away from him. And yet he comes down and he, like, that's one of the key things in the cross that I don't think we emphasize enough is that it's Jesus coming down into the very depths of our pain, walking through it with us and right. like, and saying, you know, I'm going to bear this. I'm going to bear this. I'm going to take it on myself and carry it for you because I love you just the way you are. And if you, and, and when we see the way he loves us, like that's the motivation for us to say, you know what, there's hope. I, I you know, who I am is not who I always have to be. And well, that's what I would like to see us be able to reflect as the church consistently is that sense that you matter, you are valuable just the way you are, you're precious in God's sight, and we love you. And because you have value, it's worth, it's worth trying harder, it's worth making these choices, it's worth reaching out to God and, and, and believing that there's hope for you. Right. And, and I agree with all of that. And I absolutely know um, that I think I need to clarify here. Like I said, you know, I, we help people at Christmas time. I mm -hmm. give, you know, food, everything, you know, I give things to the poor, but I look at the words sympathy and empathy and maybe what I more have for the poor in America is not the mentally ill, but the, the poor, the ones that are sitting out here on the streets um, is more of a sympathy, which is more of a thought of as pity. Therefore, I help take care of them. Empathy has more of the thought of understanding and uh, understanding them and, and uh, relating to them and, and, and kind of as Matthew was explaining his feelings towards them. I think that's more empathy 
And I, I would guess that I lack that empathy. I, I, I sympathize with them enough to pity them, to help take mm -hmm. care of them, but I don't really empathize with them. Right. And I think that's what the difference is for, yeah. for yeah. where I stand. I, I pray a, for a them. What was that? I said, I think, I think that's a real distinction that, that you're making there. I think that's, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's where I stand. And I'm sure it too is based on, on my own, you know, my own experiences. And yes, it does take time um, to get past all that stuff. But I just said, I know two people still sitting down there and it's 40 years later. How long is it going to take? You know, to figure it out. There's a college a 10th of a mile down the street from you go to it. You know, it's like, ah, something that just frustrates me i guess i kind of feel like <laughs> and and i I, re I recognize that frustration like i think any of us who have reached out in in you know to people in that kind of situation have felt that like mm -hmm. you're you're banging your head against the wall why can't you but that's where i think that empathy allows us to have that the ability to dig in and walk with people in those really dark places because we realize like I mean, this idea there, but for the grace of God, go I like, that's a real thing. Yeah. In many yeah. cases, we would be making the same decisions if we hadn't had advantages that these people have. And oh, I think, I, I think it's worth pointing out as, as far as political, you know, the political conversation, because of course, politics enters into this, that this is one of the things that, that, that polarization does to these conversations is I think in, in the United States, the two sides of the political aisle on this issue of poverty and a lot of other related issues have each have half the truth. And half a truth is often equivalent to a lie. Um, mm -hmm. On the left, there's a very strong tendency to say, you know, society and your upbringing and your environment are responsible for where you are now. We have to fix all these structural problems so that people can thrive and you're not responsible for the problems you're having. Um, like that's like most people wouldn't put it in that pure a sense, but that's right. where. You're mute. Did you mute? I think he's muted. We can't hear you. Maybe um, pull, wow. Maybe pull the wire. Anyway, um, while he's getting that figured out, I'm going to sign off. It was super nice meeting you. Um, I really enjoyed chatting and stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, I'm going to teach tomorrow and I'm going to be dragging. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to need to sign off. I would recommend um, for like some things that have been changing. And I'll, if you're interested in some reading, I'll say it to you. But anybody that's watching, um, I don't necessarily recommend the site as such because there's a lot of... Um, like there's a lot of language on this site, but there's a the site crack.com. Um, it's actually kind of a humor site, but they have a bunch of personal experience stories. And if you go to their site and, and Google the words growing up poor, they have a bunch of things with titles like bad habits you develop when you grow up poor. And it's, it was really eye opening for me to read somebody's experience and just somebody who's now successful looking back and saying, this is what this is what messed up my thinking about the way the world worked when I, just because I grew up in this kind of situation, like, um, he's scarcity like mentality. He said even his, his relationship. Yeah. Even like his relationship with the truth, mm -hmm. he said, it felt weird to me to tell the truth because I was just raised that you lie about everything. He said, until I was wired to the point where it just, he said the same discomfort that a normal person feels telling the truth, telling a lie. 
He said, I felt about telling the truth. He said, I would lie about stuff I didn't need to lie about just because it felt weird to tell the truth. And yeah. um, this is one example. And so anyway, if, if you're interested in, in reading that or people that are watching interested in reading, I recommend them. It's, it's pretty eye-opening for me. Yeah, it sounds but, interesting. Yeah, I got to. We should let Yeah, you this has been a real marathon. Or, um, right. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Thank you been, so much for terrific. coming on. Thanks so much. Everybody. Yeah. It was nice meeting um, you, David. And, yep. and right. uh, yeah, yeah, good night, David. That's um, if I sign yeah, off, I, it's not gonna somebody else will be host, right? Should, should, yeah, I okay. think it should roll over. All right, um, so yeah, um, sorry we kept you on so long because the conversation was, was so good, um, and interesting, um, as I knew it would be. So, um, uh, thank well, you. Well, I'd for, love to talk about politics some other time. Yeah, you can be really our, our local. Our, our local uh, conservatives. I really wanted to, to talk to you about Portland and Antifa and things right. like that. And I think that would be a lot of fun. So maybe another time. And um, thank you for giving us so much of your time. I know your schedule um, doesn't have a lot of slots in it. So Well, for you guys, um, I'm earlier in the right. evening, right? So that, like he said, he has to teach. Yeah, I do too, but I'm at 7.42, you know, where he's right. like, facing 10 o'clock so um yeah it's like yeah we didn't get to that who knew that we were going to get off on on this topic of you know poverty that but that's you know that's the way that's, conversations go yeah um, and, it does yeah and just um i just really appreciate the chance to come on and you know debated long and hard whether i wanted to do this or not um mm -hmm. because i have my own private thoughts about the dank kingdom the dank <laughs> podcast well, and, you've, uh, you've got you know, you've got husband. the dank on you now. What? I said you've got the dank on you now. So. Oh um. yeah, uh, and there's family members I'll never live it down with either. <laughs> well, thank thank thanks for being courageous about it. And uh, now that you've broken the ice, maybe we'll uh, make it happen again sometime. Yes, and thank you all for your thoughts. Yes. I all right. Well, it. signing off. Thanks, everybody. All right. Good thanks. night. Good night. Bye-bye.